All right. Where where are you coming to me from now? I'm I'm now coming to you from Edie's office after I uh, had to kick her out and we had to move stuff around so that I had a place to sit down and <sighs> podcast from. Hello, whatnots. Welcome to Baxter Building episode 48, in which we are so, so fucking close. <laughs> to finishing the run of the world's greatest comic book magazine, The Fantastic Four. We are covering this episode, issues 397 through 405. Oh, I should say, I'm Graham McMillan, and with me is my esteemed co-host. Yes, I'm Jeff Lester. Hello. I forgot about that. Yeah, we're doing 397 through 405, or, as I said to Jeff earlier, oh no, I thought it was just, I think, nine issues, but no, there's so many crossovers in this. We're doing... A lot of comics this time, Jeff, and sadly, none of them are good. You know, Graham, on the one hand, you're totally right, but I feel like this was the run where I had, I don't know, some some variation of Stockholm Syndrome or something like that, where I had something that I kind of liked about a lot of these comics. You're, you're back to this then. Yeah. I remember you were like this before, and I, I thought you were insane, but apparently you're you're back there. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I don't know. It's also this weird thing of, I mean, let's, let's be honest. Like, I don't, I mean, when you say, like, there's a lot of comics we're going to be discussing, we are, but you're going to be discussing most of them because you were the one well, that, who read that's all true, the tie-ins. Yeah. Yes, because you don't have all the tie-ins. We should explain. As I said, we're doing 397 through 405 of Fantastic mm-hmm. Four. However, as part of this, there are two Fantastic Fours crossovers and also a crossover called Atlantis Rising, yeah. which had its own title. Mm-hmm. And crossed over with Fantastic Force, Fantastic Four, Namor the Submariner, and utterly surreally, Warlock and the Infinity Watch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Suffice to say, I will not be covering at least half of that story. <laughs> There's a lot of comics, and I think the other thing that sort of has worked for me in this regard is A, once that I stopped caring about the stories. And B, once I stopped caring about the 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 plot hooks, like it's a it's a much smoother ride. You know what I mean? Like I that I'm, I'm genuinely surprised to hear you say that because yeah. I'm not a fan of you know the, the crossovers. I'm not a fan of, for example, there's one story that runs three nine seven through four hundred, and then yes. four one is part like four of Atlantis Rising. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm not a fan of that sort of thing. Oh. Like you're you're literally just dropped in media res and it makes no sense. Yeah. Especially in the 1990s. And honestly, like for me, these issues are like the worst this series has been. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. They're terrible. They're absolutely atrocious. They're But, but I'm like, I, I've just descended to their level. I'm like, sure, bring it on. Why not? There's a clever idea. <laughs> Ant Man, he's a clown. You know what I mean? Like I think I've just I, I think I've just lost my mind. Like I read these, admittedly, I read I read some of them under the influence of some of some very strong drugs. 
that uh, I was taking that were prescribed to me in case anyone's worried. Uh, and I just found myself being like, sure, okay. Like, there's really, me, yeah, like, that, yeah, like, honestly, because there's mm -hmm. just there's so much that I found wrong with these issues. Uh, you should, they're not good, they're really bad, they're really bad. So, but so like, I, do, I don't, I don't, I guess what I'm saying is like, I don't even get, I don't even see how you get to sure. Because I'm just like, no, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, there are what would you say, three storylines in the, these issues that we're, we're about to go through? I, I guess so, yeah. There is a, a the long awaited watcher storyline, then there is the Atlantis Rising, like I said, and then it, it's the storyline that is not a crossover, oh god, is arguably the worst one, even Absolutely. if it does tie off a subplot yeah. from you know. 10 issues ago if not longer but it's just all so shoddily shoddily done mm -hmm. there's also something wonderful about this run in that uh, in the middle of these issues the human torch just leaves the team mm -hmm. but it leaves the team in another book <laughs> which is kind of great in a terrible way you know yeah no i i you know i think like you said kind of great in a terrible way is is the way that I sort of weirdly have been reading these books. Like, at this point, my my bar has been set so absurdly low that I don't care that the characters don't look great, that the action... And it's been this way for years, right? Like, when did, when did Falco and uh, Ryan take this book over? Like... 354, I think? Yeah. 355? So we've read, like, 50 to 51 issues by this creative team. That's four over four years by these guys. And A, it's still hard not to think of them as anything other than fill-ins. B, it's terrible but it's been terrible for so long like i mean admittedly we're reading them in an accelerated clip but it's like four years of the fact that 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 paul ryan is just not really the sort of person like there's no concept of jack kirby's legacy here there's like every once in a while you'll see something like a cover that he does or there's a splash page here where i'm like i think he's ripping off burn ripping off kirby maybe but it feels more like he's like doesn't know it like you know there's just there's a lot of terrible stuff and, and i guess the the classic thing is is like 397 through 400 is a watcher story and the thing that i think uh, what i find fascinating about it we will talk about the the nuances of it but i think it's safe to say that in its sweeping overtones it is a watcher story that in, that draws heavily although i would also say ineptly on larger marvel continuity and the fantastic four continuity in particular you know it's like it features um you know we've had this weird shady plot subplot going on with uatu and a mysterious figure in the shadows that he's talking to and his strange mysterious plans and in issue three th 397 the watcher shows up and is basically like 
you know, you, I'm tired of you messing with my mysterious plants. Actually, he shows up being like, hey, you guys, there's like a scroll invasion. You Here, quick, fly to the edge of the universe. And they're like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. we got to go help Sue. And he's like, ah, fuck. Well, I tried. And he just starts, like, trying to kill them. And part of me is like, that's kind of funny. Like, the problem <laughs> is, is that it's not... You know what I mean? Like, it's sort of, it's such a kind of, like, there were several points, particularly between 397 and 400, where I'm like, man, imagine if a good team was doing this, you know? Because they're... they're Yes, yes, but also, imagine if a team that actually enjoyed it was doing this. At this point, the series has become so, so not fun. Mm -hmm. There there is an absence of any level of pleasure in this book at this point. That it comes across, I think. I, I really like this. This book feels utterly joyless. Mm. When you said, you know, the, the this team has been on for for four years, it's also been four years of essentially the same plot. Uh, is it? Has it? I guess. Or, so. or, okay, the same plots. Like you mm-hmm. still have. Yeah. Johnny's love life with his wife, the Skrull. Which right. remember when they exposed that she was a Skrull, that storyline seemed to be over remarkably quickly yeah little did we know that it would be brought back months later and just remain as the constant in the fucking book yes yeah, yeah, forever. yeah. that's right well right that's or, happened or... right the death of reed richards which is the, now at this point probably again what two years old two and a half years old but, but also like on top of that mm-hmm. the the dark raider shows up again in yes this yeah yep even though he's been dealt with twice before yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. At this point. You know, even the Watcher stuff. Oh, yeah, the is, Watcher stuff. Is, mm-hmm. Has been going on for a really long time. Yep. So, yes, we're reading on an accelerated clip, and thank God. Right. Because can you imagine being the readers who are four years into this run and are honestly just being like, is anything actually ever going to end in this book? Well, but the weird thing is, is that on the one hand, I agree with you, but like just the fact that. Franklin, like Franklin pops up in this book. He split off and became Fantastic Force, you know. But like when they show up again in issue 400 and all of a sudden it's Huntara and Franklin, like I kind of, oh, right. They got rid of them. Like Nathaniel Richards is like a cold sore, but there's a weird way in which I'm like, yeah, but he's a differently shaped cold sore. I mean, one would argue that that Nathaniel Richards in particular, A, is like, uh, I don't even know how to put it. He's He's not even a character. You know what I mean? Like he's... He's just, like, I don't know. If nothing else, Graham, I personally feel that as a fan of the Venture Brothers, like, you know, it's almost like time travel. Like, I don't think you could have Venture Brothers without this run of the Fantastic Four because there's a point where Nathan Richards, later on, there's that issue where he's, like, at Castle Doom and he's sipping brandy and he's got, like, a a leisure jacket on, but he's still got, like, his, like battle pants and his like cyborg eye and his other stuff and it's just it's just so stupid like there are parts in in this in these eight issues that were so genuinely goddamn dumb that i was like okay well i can appreciate this 
as a farce of a comic. Now, again, that's not a recommendation. I, the the sort of, I know you're very much a fan of like, oh yeah, you know, the so bad it's good and everyone's kind of in on the joke. I don't think anyone is in on the joke anymore, but there is a way in which I'm like, yeah, but you gotta laugh. You gotta laugh that like <laughs> Tom DeFalco and Paul Ryan brought back that shit about like, why are all these statues of the thing popping up in this ancient civilization? And I love the fact that even though they bring it up like two years later, like still nobody cares about it. And B, the explanation that you get for this like long running cliffhanger, I'm like, that was important to you? Like, really, honestly, like, you had to get well, around I, to that? I, I, that on I a checklist? have a theory about that, mm -hmm. that that we'll get to when we get to those issues. Great. Let's start with 397. Our Watcher's Wrath, it says on the cover, yes. or the story is called The Fabulous FF Faces Stunning and Unexpected Turning Point, Resurrection! <laughs> I am not lying when I say the thing that interests me most about FF number 397 is that John Costanza letters it using a computer. Mm. And that is legitimately the most interesting thing to me about this comic, which is a shame yeah. because there are, there are things that theoretically are interesting about it. The issue opens with Human Torch mm -hmm. flying through an airport, rushing to reach Ben and Scott Lang. Why is he in an airport when he can fly? Because he helpfully explains that he wants to conserve all his energy. Mm -hmm. Flying cross country would have exhausted it while flaming on and flying through the city. Right. So, you know, conserve most of his energy, conserve some of his energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't blame Paul Ryan for doing the more visually dynamic thing for once in his fucking life. <laughs> but Tom DeValco could have at least vaguely tried to play along with that one. Yeah. Anyway, as he flies out looking for Sue, a piece of luggage transforms into Elijah. See, because of course it is. Okay, see, just transformed into another human. How can you not love this issue, Graham? That issue, right off the bat, that makes me laugh. Like, what the hell is wrong with this woman's self-esteem? Oh, I'll be a piece of luggage to spy on him? Like, she's like, it's clear she didn't want to purchase a ticket for herself, but I'm like... What the? Who put her on there? Like, did she sneak into the baggage row after she saw him got online and then kind of blurp, 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 blurp into a Here, duffel bag? Here's the, thing. here's the thing. Because she's a shape changer, she could just shape change herself the tag to make it look like someone else had checked her in. Oh, you're a genius. You're a genius. This That's is why... why it scrolls. I can save you a lot of money on travel. Yeah. Just, just talk to me. <laughs> We're, we'll work it all out. As Johnny is heading to the Baxter building. Sorry, for Freedom Plaza. We don't have the Baxter building. I, I haven't had for I like know. 200 issues. Look, it's my own fault. It's because we named the podcast this. <laughs> Scott and Ben are firing up the old scroll plane, which is now called the Stealth Hawk. I have to admit, I missed that they called it the Stealth Hawk before this. Is yeah. this the first time they're calling it the Stealth Hawk? Graham, I have to tell you the other thing, because I've had questions about previous issues, and I couldn't bring myself to go back and look at any of them. So I don't know. No, they've had the, skull, the Stealth Hawk for a while. I believe it's the they've first the time they've called it. While. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I have no as, as they're as they preparing to enter into space to try and find where Sue is, you'll remember the reason they're all so panicked is that all three of them have seen flaming Sue Yep. saying that there was disaster and they must find Sue. Yep. The Watcher shows up, and the Watcher is like, you guys, listen, I am the Watcher. But he actually says, be at ease, my friends. It is only I, 
the Watcher. I love the idea. Tom Falco's Watcher in particular is stunningly verbose. Yeah. Amazingly obtuse, but really, really likes to hear himself talk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, he shows up and it's like, you guys, listen, you have to go into space and intercept a ship. I know you seem busy, but I am the Watcher. Can't interfere. Definitely not interfering. But if you can go into space and catch the ship, that'd be great. Really helpful. Can't tell you why. Can't interfere. But listen, go into space. And understandably, Johnny and Ben are like, no, we're we're we have we've got something else to do. And the Watcher does what only the Watcher can do, tries to shoot them with his eye beams. <laughs> because here's the thing, Jeff. On the one hand, this is ridiculous. On the other hand, this is entirely in keeping with the way we've seen the Watcher in the Falco Ryan run. Because yes. you remember he just killed the others beforehand? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He killed Dark Raider. Spoilers, no, he didn't. You'll find out in a second. Yeah. It's insane. So yeah, there's a, a giant fight with the Watcher, which then goes across like half an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and includes a lot of just dumb shit. Oh, so much like, dumb they shit. They stuff at the Watcher, and the Watcher melts it, and then they go, we'll f- fire jet engines on him, and then he understandably is like, no. Like, I can <laughs> melt stuff with my hand. Why do you think jet engines will do anything? But no, they do all that shit. Yeah. There's, a, there's a subplot, which is... Sue wakes up in Tibet and the increasingly shady Nathaniel Richards has trapped her in a big glass ball mm-hmm. that she escapes from. And Nathaniel, when she escapes, is basically like, aha, I expected you to do that. Look at my cyborg guy. I'm up to no good. And then it cuts back to more fucking fighting the Watcher because who the fuck knows? How do you beat a Watcher? I'll tell you. You bring in another Watcher. Exactly. Because sure enough, another Watcher shows up and is like, oh, listen, little baldy i'll fucking kick your ass i'm fucking bald too look we've got the same outfit and the first watcher goes blimey lads the rosers and disappears (laughs) understandably when this happens the fantastic four or fantastic two and scott lang go so wait are you our watcher was that who who are you exactly and the second watcher also disappears because of course he does but he leaves behind a giant piece of technology which Scott even says, only a scientific genius on the level of Reed Richards could possibly discern its function. Johnny goes, yeah, but the Watcher must have dropped it for a reason. A, must he? Yeah. B, it's important you remember that only a scientific genius on the level of Reed Richards could possibly discern its function. Because three issues from now, Scott Lang is going to build a weapon out of this. <laughs> well, to be fair, well, anyway, we'll get there. Well, we'll get there. To, yeah. to be fair, what? I, what is your to be fair? That the Watcher also drops other pieces of technology. See, it's got that's it exactly. Like yeah, yeah, clearly. But uh, but the but my favorite new member of the Fantastic Four is the is sort of helps determine oh, exactly. what it's for. So he's he's literally about to appear. Yeah. You may or may not remember that Nathaniel has told Sue that she is helping basically return one of Nathaniel's sons. And he's like, maybe I have more than one son, do I? No. <laughs> There's actually a panel of him going, ha, 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 which is amazing and maybe the most fun in this entire fucking comic but as as this person wakes up guess who it is is it reed no is it dr doom no is it christoph the dr doom like brainwashed child yes it is how exactly does this fit with nathaniel saying that it was going to be one of his sons spoilers it doesn't and it does it does he found christoph's mom he fucked. He calls him son. He's like. He's like. You can call me Nathan or Nathaniel Richards. 
son. Like, you know, no, he no. calls him son several points. And I know it's supposed I... to be it's supposed to be fraud. They bring it back up. They make it a point. Christoph has Look, never known even, his dad. Do you even vaguely believe that for a second? No, of even course vaguely. not. Of That's course what I'm saying. Not. But literally, no. they just they just brought a character back and they're like, sure, it's like Nathaniel Nathaniel's dad, whatever. It's the most half ass thing ever. Because for the first but not the last time in these issues, it's such a fucking swerve that makes no sense. Oh, yeah. But see, that's it. I think that's it. I've just sustained enough brain damage from reading the rest of these issues of, it's great. Don't you see? Tom DeFalco is trying to say with a straight face, Reed Richards' dad is a time fucker. You know what I mean? Like, he just goes through time and fucks people, and then he has kids, and then he's like, ha my son. Like, that's insane <laughs> that that's where Tom DeFalco is going with this. You know what I mean? Like, we know on the one hand that, like you said, it's for the swerve. Like, everything that they're doing is still trying to maintain that level of, like, oh, my God, you'll never see this plot twist coming, and you have to keep turning the pages and buying the issues. But when you disconnect yourself from that and you try and think what Tom DeFalco is trying to say, I mean, he's not, but because he's not paying attention, you're like, he's trying to make it sound like the FF's greatest foe is Time Fucker. You know what I mean? Like, oh, and no, that's Reed's dad. Like, dad. Is. Time Fucker is the greatest foe, and they make that point over and over again. Yeah. What I'm upset about to the extent that I'm upset is there's such a thing as a play for a mystery, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that, and that was gone like least, four years ago or something, no, right? No, but, but this is like the opposite of Playfair Mystery, both in terms of the character who's awoken who turns out to be Kristoff and... Boris, yeah, 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 Boris showing up. But he is almost immediately shown to be someone else, and you get actual thought balloons where he's like, ha-ha, none of them know who I truly am. But in both those cases, DeFalco is clearly aiming for someone who is not who it ends up being. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so much not a play for mystery that I don't even think is misdirection. I think DeFalco literally changes his mind. Boris, especially, I think he's leading up to a particular reveal that is not who it ends up being. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Uh, I absolutely. There's agree. such a thing as a swerve that is intended to blindside the readers. And there's such a thing as a swerve wherein the original concept did not make it to completion for whatever reason. And I think both Christoph and Boris are the latter. Yeah. Do you, now, is it is it unfair to talk about what you think the original intention was, or should we cover that? I guess when we let's wait until we get to Boris. Okay. I, because I think that both Christoph and Boris were originally supposed to be the same character. Mm, interesting. Okay. Anyway, Christoph shows up. That's who they've woken up. He's he's here, and he's he's basically like, "That's great. I'm awake again. Thanks very much." He's very grateful. Hooray! Mm-hmm. Elijah is running towards Four Freedoms Plaza, meanwhile, and sees the the stealth hawk take off and is very upset. She's so upset, she's going to leave the book for a while. Cut back to Kristoff waking up and giving everyone a one-page reminder of who he is because no one's seen Kristoff in like a hundred issues. Yes, totally, totally. He's like, you guys will have forgotten about me because everyone has forgotten about me. That's okay. Right. He learns the Doctor Doom is dead. He's very upset. And we get our first hint that Boris is not who he is expected to be. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. He's not who he is trailed to be either, because of course he's not. The Watcher shows back up in his little Watcher house, 
Jeff, by the time we get to Atlantis Rising, I have the greatest facts to tell you about the Watcher House. Ooh. But as he's looking at his screens, because that is now how the Watcher watches everything, a figure shows up from the dark and it's like, you don't understand, you don't know the Fantastic Four, like I know the Fantastic Four, I'm in shadow, but let me walk out over three panels to surprise people. I'm fucking Reed Richards! Yep. Spoilers. No, he's not. <laughs> Cut back to Ben and Johnny and Scott Lang, all wearing matching jackets, have shown up in Tibet where they're now hanging out with Christoph, Dr. Christoph Doom, Nathaniel Richards and Sue wearing a non-matching jacket. Get with the program, Sue. Yeah. And as they are all hanging out, they're like, you know, well, you know, what what should we do? Or I guess something up. And Johnny's like, oh, he left. We've got this big piece of technology to do if only we knew what it meant and Christoph's like I am as smart as Dr. Doom because I had his brain in me for a while do you remember I'm going to get it all together and I'm going to explain what it's all about so so there's a few things here which is great like DeFalco clearly warps Christoph you know what I mean like like this is reintroducing Christoph Christoph in what sense uh, in the sense of Byrne had introduced Kristoff as, you know, as described in the book, a kid who was sort of raised to be his heir, by which he means he's implanted with his, uh, all of his memories and his personality. And Byrne very clearly has Kristoff believe that he is Dr. Doom. He doesn't think that he is Kristoff. There's no knowledge of himself as child, essentially. And so when the real Doctor Doom shows up, there's a lot of fighting and fretting and fussing for for too many storylines. So the Kristoff that comes out of the tube is a Kristoff who is aware of himself as kind of an... He's basically... Um, I don't know. You know, he's basically Doctor Doom and Richie Rich crossed together. He's like kind of an, you know, an arrogant kid... Who, but who knows who he's an arrogant kid, so he's like, I was raised to be the, the offspring of Doctor Doom, but he's really very much like, I don't know, you know, like Michaela Culkin with a Russian accent. Like, it's just, it's very clear that, that he's, he is different than where he was so that DeFalco can do different things with him. And crazily enough again this is the miracle of slipshod plotting but the idea that this character who they have faced in antagonistic circumstances repeatedly and who allies himself as as doom in this appearance all the way throughout they're like here's something that can melt a universe and he's like let me look at it and they're like uh okay yeah Okay, like Johnny literally says something like, um, sure, like, what could it hurt? And I'm just like, what are you guys even talking about? Well, you know, to, to be fair, like, l later on, I want to say in 400, that's brought up. Mm -hmm. Like, the idea that you don't pass incredibly dangerous technology to a kid who calls Dr. Doom Master yeah. is specifically addressed. Yeah, but A, it still happens here, and B, the weird part is... Remember all the way back when we read FF, was it issue 125 or whatever, written by Archie Goodwin, or is it 120 that more or less wraps up Stan Lee's like horrible last run with John Basima and it's them versus, was it the Overmind, and Doctor Doom mm -hmm. joins the team? And we're like, yeah. Doom's a great addition to the FF. 
you know, like weirdly, I didn't realize a couple hundred years later, I, uh, years, issues, it just feels like hundred years. No, no, I, I think, I think you're right. Yeah, I spoke correctly <laughs> the first time. It, he, like, you get a nerfed version of Doctor Doom joining the team. And this is the thing that, again... And proving you wrong. You, well, proving you that he's, that he's not a great addition to I, the team. He, I, I disagree. I'm actually... Kristoff made, made these issues way more readable for me. Even as I sit there being like, A, they're not doing the character right. B, like, you know, playing by the, the, the rules of the character is set up by the character. The team isn't reacting properly, you know... And you just and it's clear that DeFalco doesn't care enough, and he just cuts to like within two or three issues, you literally get Ant Man and and Kristoff being like the new Laurel and Hardy of the team, and I'm like, it's, I, it's just perverse. Like, it's it's wrong on every conceivable level, and yet part of me was like, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean. <laughs> No, but that but that's just it. There is nothing in these issues that makes sense for the Fantastic Four as you know them. Oh, like yeah. even even with the right. Reed is dead, therefore, like you know, things are complicated. Yeah. No, no, like why are they still hanging out with Nathaniel, who has shown himself to be astoundingly untrustworthy? Yeah, and they're like, oh, sh- shit's happening. So I guess we might as well hang out with this guy we can't trust as far as we can throw him, who seems to want world domination. Right. Actually, two of them, because we've now got Junior Doom. Yeah. Junior Doom, who you're not even sure, but they apparently trust him more than Nathaniel, which sort of makes sense. And there's also part of me where it's like, where did they start? Like, DeFalco is so bad at wrapping up storylines and developing characterization. This this Nathaniel Richards is not only very different from the Nathaniel Richards that was introduced back in Burns' day, he's mm-hmm. incredibly different from the Nathaniel Richards that was introduced back in DeFalco and Ryan's day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. when he shows up and he swipes uh, Franklin and then brings him back time swapped. And then there's all these rumors that you can't trust him. And Franklin's like, no, no, you can. And then at some point DeFalco's like, eh, you know what? Yeah, you can't. And, and acts as, as if like everyone has known that all along. And, and it's just not the case. And so you get to a point where Nathaniel Richards, like I said, by the time he's he's like wearing a smoking jacket and essentially has been freeloading in Doctor Doom's castle and is kind of like, yeah, I got to drink up the good stuff because Kristoff is going to come back and kick me out because I can't live here. He's like Doctor Doom. I'm just the guy who's literally been <laughs> squatting in Doctor Doom's castle for like two years. Part of me is like, Nathaniel Richards is the Marvel find of like 1995. Like, you know what I mean? Like, part well, of me you is forget like, that Nathaniel Richards also has been dressing up as Doctor Doom for reasons that are never explained. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Like, it's, it just, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And he's a time fucker. Like, you're just like, what are you even doing with this character? You're, you're, like, you're very, you're very stuck on the time fucker thing. Come on, Graham. It's a little hard not to. Like, basically, any time you run into who's this mysterious character, Nathaniel Richards is like, hey, I fucked his mom. Like, you know, like, that's <laughs> hilarious. I'm sorry. It's immature of me, but it's hilarious that, like, if, there, if there's ever anything that sums up, like, Marvel Comics in, like, 1996, it's like 
a character who's, you know, basically being written like Tom DeFalco, who keeps popping up being, no, I'm your real dad. Like, that's, like, come on. That's like Tom DeFalco's, you know, self-insert fanfic at that point. You know what I mean? Reed Richards, I'm his dad. Dr. Doom, I'm his dad. Kristoff, I'm also his dad. I'm Tom DeFalco, and I'm everyone's dad. I thought Stan Lee was my dad. No, 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 no. I'm your dad. Me. So, anyway, I can't, I can't help but love that. Fantastic Four 398 <laughs> is called Torture's Lie. <laughs> and it starts off a trilogy of titles which make me wish that Tom DeFalco is actually secretly trying to write poetry across the, the mm. episode titles. Did you see that? Yes. Watchers lie, watchers scheme, even watchers can die. <laughs> you know, like, I imagine... didn't catch that. I think it did. You're right. I think he was going for it. Yep. Imagine Tom DeFalco is doing some weird beat poetry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Watchers lie. Watchers scheme. Anyway, so yeah. I can't believe, I can't believe you stopped for even Watchers can die. Come on. <laughs> You're leaving me hanging, man. 398 is, is I want to just be like, more of the same. <laughs> it is. It absolutely is. In all ways. That's a perfect description. I mean, we should talk about what happened. but yeah. isn't it? Yeah. The Fantastic Four fly using the stealth hawk to the moon because they're going to confront the Watcher. In doing so, they alarm the Inhumans. But not the Inhumans that we know because you may remember, Jeff, the Inhumans we know were last seen in a carnival yes. or, uh, outside the park. And we were both like, when did that happen? And A, it's referenced here. And B, I can tell you I finally fucking read that story. Mm. The royal family of the Inhumans, as a result of Fantastic Four Unlimited issue 2, which is terrible just going to put that out there, abdicate themselves from the Inhumans altogether and decide that in order to learn humility, they're going to live in a carnival yeah. outside of New York. It's amazing. And by amazing, I mean it actually makes this shit look good. <laughs> it's really, really bad. Anyway, the Inhumans that are alarmed are called the Genetic Council. Sorry, the Sacred Genetics Council. Mm-hmm. And they have wonderful Dave Cockrum-esque design, mm-hmm. if nothing else. But they are forgettable as shit. But if you've forgotten them now, don't worry. They get even more forgettable in a few issues' time when they return. It's a whole thing. Anyway, mm-hmm. while they're being alarmed, they shoot at the Stealth Hawk. It's a big thing for all of a page and a half. And then they... they it stops being a thing because Sue makes the, the plane invisible and they land and the FF go and confront the Watcher and it goes poorly. They're interrupted by, by older Watcher. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have a question to ask. Like, and I am going to jump ahead and spoil something slightly here. Mm-hmm. 398, oh, 397 through 400 are very Watcher-centric. Yes. Is it just me or is this astoundingly boring? Uh, you, uh, <laughs> really, they really go all out to try and create, like, you know, big epic mythology around the Watchers. Maybe I should have seen the, the sign in 398 where, like, Watcher is interrupted by older Watcher yeah. and sucked into a hole by older Watcher and disappears. Mm-hmm. But it's so esoteric to leave me be like oh, okay well because i think the thing is is again graham this this is this is the the curse of tom defalco comics it just feels like a narrative faint like i because i haven't read these issues before when the older watcher comes and steals away uh the the other watcher before he can tell the ff what's going on it's such 
the DeFalco dick move. Like someone's about to explain something, then a bigger, more mysterious mystery pops up and swipes that person before they can reveal something because there's an even bigger mystery behind the mystery. The thing that shocked me was that this is set up in 398 and then resolved in issue 400. I was like... Oh man, this is going to go on for you know exactly. And this is... If I know anything about these comics, the fact yeah. that they've set this up, like maybe the result for this comic gets cancelled. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which I swear to God, half the time I can't, I can't see that coming. Like I literally read that, being like, "Oh yeah, I, I, that'll get resolved in thirty issues." No, it won't, Jeff. You, they only have twenty issues left at this point. You should know this, even if they don't. But I, I didn't. I was just like, eh. You know, don't so the fact that when they come back and resolve it and and say where the watcher got swiped to and why, part of me was like, oh, that's surprising. It's not interesting because again, Defalco, there's no there's no setup. The setup is this mysterious event, which is exactly the same as every single mysterious event that's been happening for four years now. Like, yeah, exactly. That's the problem. Like everything in this book is amazingly same. Anyway, the watcher gets gets sucked into a watcher hole by an older watcher. <laughs> Cuts to Reed Richards, yeah. who is really the Dark Raider, but he's Reed Richards as far as we know right now, who is watching going, uh, at last, Uatu has been summoned exactly as we anticipated. And then, guess what? Flaming Susan shows up, and yeah. she says, Nathan, you must hear the words of Nathan, only he holds the key to your survival. We will get to Flaming Susan very soon, because I have a real problem with Flaming Susan. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, although uh, it's hilarious. As they are trying to work out what that means. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's actually fairly clear. You must see the words of Nathan is not like a coded message. Anyway, the Watcher shows back up, but guess what? He's not fucking the Watcher at all. He's Aaron the Renegade. Remember Aaron the Renegade? You might remember him. He's the Watcher who has a slightly different outfit and has a red cape instead of a blue cape, and he's evil. Yep. The end. Yep. Except it's not the end. Ben has been knocked out of the Watcher's house by by Aaron and wakes up and he's, he's met the death squad of the Inhumans. <laughs> okay. The instructions are pointless, they say. All you need to know is that we are your death squad. <laughs> um, there are two things about this comic that are notable for me. Uh-huh. And none of them are the main plot. One is the introduction of the death squad where they all say their names. And they that's that's just a beautifully shit panel. Yeah. Rutar the irresistible, a witcher decree, mighty Ator, supposes Elak, Elak the Agile, Galubo Smash. I mean it's just it's amazing. It's, it's, it's just bad. It's like introduction panel of like the most forgettable characters oh, yeah. in the world who have the most cliche dialogue in the world i genuinely love them and i like i want to see new comics about them right now of course you do of course you do Turbo smash yeah uh, thing number two is the reveal in the very last page of the comic wherein sue turns out to be uh, sorry flaming sue is turns out to be a hologram projected by nathan right which is simultaneously not a surprise and such a pile of horseshit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a complete like, pile of crap. Yeah. I genuinely... So there's, a- there's a few things. It, it, Graham, 
you do such a stellar work of recapping that I don't want you to in any way take this personally that you you missed a few plot nuances. Such oh, as, no, such I, I missed many plot nuances because yeah. I fucking hate this issue and, and was trying to get yeah. it over as quickly as possible. I know, I get it. But when Flaming Sue appeared and is like, Nathan, you must hear the words, of, you must heed the words of Nathan, only he holds the key to your survival. Like, everyone's kind of like, huh, you know, she's been tipping us off to trouble all along. You're, you're, going, to, you're going to say Nathan's response, aren't you? No, Kristoff's response. Yeah, which is the same thing. Which is, to me, which is Kristoff is like, Doom's right. The Fantastic Four would have never threatened him without the guidance of Reed Richards. Apparitions indeed. A child could have designed the technology needed to produce a simple flaming image. And, of course, that's the point where Nathan's like, oop got to get out of here and then is later like okay guys they're they're wise to the flaming sue thing but i i love i do love because one of the things that has been great since reed has died and we sort of mentioned this is we sort of mentioned in passing that one issue under stan and jack's uh run where Reed basically says like, okay, I've had it with you dummies. I'm quitting the FF. You guys aren't like smart enough to rub two rocks together. And then the rest of the issue is more or less them proving him right. And it, which is sad and it sucks, but there's something that is kind of hilarious about, uh, to me again, as someone who has ceased to treat this book seriously. Yeah. For you, this is no longer fantastic Four. This is like Keystone cops. Yeah, right. Exactly. This, this is basically venture brothers, primordial ooze where like, you know, Dr. Doom's, you know, adopted son is like, wow, you guys really are morons. He really did say that, which is just so mean. The idea that, that, you know, Dr. Doom, who of course hates Reed Richards is like, ah, Ah, he's nothing before the genius that is Doom. But let me tell you, those other guys, man, those are those guys are like morons in jumpsuits. And and I, I mean, and he's right. Yeah, he's right. Basically, they're all kind of like <laughs> flaming Sue shows up. I just love the idea that Nathan too is like, oh shit. Like now, I'm sure if we go back, there's a reason why you should be pissed because. Flaming Sue has shown up in a variety of different reasons and uh, at different points. And there's one point where clearly she is a legitimate in that in that first horrible like oh, sure. yeah, yeah. death of, you know, we die at Galactus's hands kind of storyline where she's legit. And since then, she's been popping up. But the whole idea that she pops up in danger and Johnny flies all the way across the country to unite with Ben to try and go find her and then literally Aaron and you know what we now know is Aaron and uh evil Reed show up to try and get them to not do that which they don't listen to which then starts the fight like they're it's basically serving the right ends even if Nathan himself is clearly like at that point using her like it doesn't make any sense like it's just shit pulled out of the kind of in the very worst way that like um i mean this whole this run of the ff is like lot like one long season three of lost where like they're just (laughs) where defalco is just vamping for time and making shit up to keep you interested and then the way that he tries to resolve some of the mysteries is so lazy and half-assed that you realize that he didn't know what he was doing when he thought of it in the first place, and B, he doesn't really care enough to come up with anything that's at all original. So again, as someone who is does not have a horse in the race at all at this particular point, part of me is like, 
again, I just like it because of the character find of 1995, Christoph von Doom <laughs> being like, you guys are morons, and they're all like, wait, huh? Wait, what? wait, wait. You're, you said the character find was Nathan. Like, make up your mind, Jeff. Oh, it's, well, I mean, they're both. What can I say? You're, like, you're off, like, can't it both be? Can't yeah, they both can be? Because the fact is, they've both they're, been around before. But it's like this particular matter, incarnation. They're both not astoundingly different characters. Yeah, well, that's true. Except one's like a 12-year-old. I thought he was eight, but at a certain point he's referred to as a 12-year-old, which is... I don't even want to get... Because there's well, some, well, some they upcoming Well, they hijinks. have to age him up. Yeah, exactly. Because he's going to romance Scott Lang's daughter. <laughs> because of course he is. Of course we he have is. That oh to come. my God, can we talk about that yet? Oh my it's God, not I've been dying. Yet. I can't wait. I've been like holding my tongue. <laughs> it's not happened yet. Oh my God. Um, what's really funny is the thing that you like about that plot is what makes me mad. Which is anyone should have thought that through. Because again, I, I said this before. Sue should know that's not real because Sue was that flaming Sue. Yeah. Like, that is in her past. She should be the first person to be like, this is weird bullshit because I was flaming Sue before and that's not me. But no one, only Kristoff's like, you know, anyone could pull that off. And even he isn't like, you guys, it's not real. Right. It's just, yeah, it's it's really, really annoying. And and as a, as a, a larger plot, mm-hmm. Like it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Why is Nathan doing it? Yeah. Like what? What does Nathan stand to gain from it? Right. Nothing. It's literally Defalco going. Oh fuck it. Sure, it's Nathan. Nathan's like it's a projection from Nathan. Exactly. Fine. Yep. You yeah, know, yeah. and uh, that's that's what annoys me. It's it's just it's another of the many. You know what the fuck? Uh, who who really cares? Like mm-hmm. it gets us an issue further mm-hmm. of it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Completely. Before we go, should should I mention that? Uh, I um. Did you? Should I mention the metatextual shout out to Valiant and Defiant from back in three ninety seven, or is it not worth mentioning? Oh my God! Please do. Oh, so so there's a thing where the two watchers confront one another, and we don't know which Uatu is real and which Uatu is not. But one of them says, and it's spoilers. It'll end up being Aaron. So my actions have finally forced you to set aside the sacred oath. Join me, brother. Together we can break free from the one. We can leave this decadent plane of reality and create a new universe, a new home for the valiant and defiant. So I didn't even notice that. Really? Oh, okay. All right. All right. So I don't know to what extent, again, I feel like I've pointed out that it seems like Aaron, even in being sloppily handled by DeFalco is some strange, like, weird, um, gym shooter toxic dumping ground slash, uh, I don't know. It's just weird. Anyway, uh, I just wanted to point that out because I thought I, I wasn't sure if you'd skimmed over it, like I said, just for speed or if, it, but it's, it's a fun little minute. No, I, I, I 100% missed it. Okay. I, I I did not see that at all, and I'm very glad you called my attention to it. Yeah. So, anyway, I feel like we can roll forward with Watcher's scheme because I don't. Unfortunately, I don't have some, or I uh, I misspoke. Fortunately, I do not have some crazy half baked theory to bore everyone with for the next twenty minutes. About so, we should just move forward. Would you like to recap Watcher's scheme, seeing as I've done last week? Uh, I don't know. Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sort of like uh, Watcher's Scheme 399 also uh, 
thing that's sort of fun, I think, is issues 398, 399, and 400 have a weird uh, iris effect cover, which I think is kind of a clever idea where there's an overlay cover in sort of sketch format that will end up being the cover of FF 400, but um, it's, it's overlaid. So if you're looking at the GIT core stuff, you get to see the overlay. If you're looking at it on Marvel Unlimited, which I sort of tried to but couldn't, it's only just the regular cover underneath. Because it, it was, yeah, it was die cut. It was yeah, the exactly. Original it's was another die cut cover. Uh, foil cover, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's really designed to be like an integrated whole, which is hilarious because, again, it's just Tom DeFalco and Paul Ryan pulling things out of their ass. Uh, so yes, you've got Aaron, the rogue watcher being like, ha ha ha, at last I can rid myself of you troublesome insects. Again, just completely overlooking the fact that Aaron has already like w disappeared off with his own faux characters in Steve Englehart's run and therefore his reasons for being back uh, by Tom DeFalco in Paul Ryan's run has never boiled down to anything more than, oh, wouldn't it be cool if there was an evil watcher? So he's here being an evil watcher, which is going to be like, ah, ha, 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 I totally manipulated you guys. I assume you thought you'd seen the last of me when the one called Doom managed to rob me of a goodly measure of my power cosmic back in FF373. While I was still recovering from the heinous assault, you had to delivered me to the, the other watchers. I was about to face their judgment for having repeatedly interfered with mankind when they were unexpectedly summoned to, to defend the entity we have named the one now again that was a long time ago i'm sure that this all like marvel continuity has that thing where you know that was 26 issues ago but i'm sure according to tom defalco that was literally like a day and a half anywho there's a desperate battle raging for the fate of the universe a battle which the watchers are destined to lose Aaron's like i'm gonna win you know i'm gonna survive basically because i'm not gonna be any part of it and Sue's like, ugh, ugh, you you bore me with your, your dumb tirades. You may be from an advanced race. You still sound like an old movie villain. Now everyone hit him with everything that they got. And again, Kristoff, character find of 1995, fires a pistol. Like he's jumping through in it like midair like a John Woo hero firing a gun like a pimp because I love him. Anyway, they all hit Aaron, and he's <laughs> he like... He really is your favorite. You oh, love that I character. do. I, I stand Kristoff like nobody's business. Like, the whole, like, <laughs> I'm a 12-year-old wearing Doctor Doom's armor, and whenever possible, I whip out a gun and shoot things, going pew, pew, pew. <laughs> I, I'd like to point out, it's not a gun. It's, it, well, rather, it looks just like a gun apart from, it's apparently a laser gun. It's a, it's a molecular disruptor. It's a molecular sure. disruptor. Sure. Yeah. It's a molecular disruptor that looks like a regular yeah, gun. Yeah, it just looks like a fucking gun. <laughs> like, he's got a holster and he whips out a gun. It's like, pew, pew. Like, why do you keep a molecular disruptor in your shoulder holster? Like, uh, Second Amendment. Pew, pew, pew. So, anyway, um, so this is hilarious. Johnny Storm, it basically says, like, hey, wait a minute. You weren't trying to, like, kill the Watcher with your molecular disruptor. Were you Kristoff? And he's like, of course I was. And he's like, I want to make sure the real, real sure Kristoff understands me. The FF doesn't commit senseless murder, says Johnny Storm, Human Torch, slash Human Waffle, who has managed to flip back and forth about whether or not it's okay to kill things 
three times under this creator's run alone. It's hilarious. But anyway, this is where he's at right now, Jeff. That's what he's trying to say. Yeah, that's where he's at. He's kind of like, you know, like... <laughs> Okay, I can't even go there because it's actually just so wrong. But let's let's just say. Oh my say, god! Please go there. No, I can't. I can't. I can't because because I think it would actually be funny, but it is such a tasteless joke. Let's just say that that Johnny is um, uh, he's exploring. He's exploring his homicidiality oh, is where I was going to go with that. And I'm like, no, that sounds wrong. That just sounds wrong. So it sounds it sounds bad. Anyway, uh, yeah, the FF doesn't commit senseless murder, says Johnny Storm. This time, this issue, who knows what it'll be next time. He also gets to say the phrase, I've always wanted to hear him say, what, what are you doing to my sister? Uh, as the watcher, for whatever reason, which we can only hint at, like... Uh, hits Sue with a beam that, that blasts her out of uh, the the room slash existence. And before we can find out whether this happened to her, we get to see um, Ben um, mixing it up with the team of deadly humans, inhumans known as Death Squad or Your Death Squad or The Death no, Squad. The, the, They're they later called a, something they like get a name The Crimson issue. Guard. Is that what yeah, it is? Yeah, The Crimson Cadre. The Crimson Cadre. Like, there's has there ever been a case of alliteration that Tom DeFalco didn't... And again, I love that... You may love Christoph. I love The Crimson Cadre. The Crimson Cadre are kind of great because they are... Because as you put perfectly, they Paul Ryan one hundred and ten percent was inspired by Dave Cockrum's crazy ass wonderful Imperial Guard to mm -hmm. design a team of similar, uh, you know, basically a spread of super powered figures that are going to give our heroes a run for money. But what's great, it, what I love about the Crimson Cadre is how f the weird part is is def is you've got DeFalco and Ryan, their first appearance of the Crimson Cadre when they are being introduced is disposable as all shit, and Tom DeFalco clearly doesn't care. But you would think that Paul Ryan, who invented the characters, would. But there's such a weird amount lack of drama. So you basically have a fight scene where Ben is fighting the Crimson Cadre. And one of the things that I actually like is I was expecting them to fight the FF, but it's really just Ben fighting all of them and more or less kind of holding his own, at least until he actually s literally steps in one of his enemies and then starts getting... Glabu! Glabu. I mean, again, the Crimson Cadre, the difference... Th part of what I enjoy about them is... The distance between conception and execution is so great. These characters are all terrible. Elac the Agile is like, ugh. Anyway, so Elac all the this... Agile is so great. Behold, see how easily I crush the life from him. He did. Exactly. <laughs> more, more importantly, can we talk about the fact that there is a dragon woman whose name is Margoyle? <laughs> I love Margoyle. Like, is it Margoyle? Is it Marjoyle? Like, what were they thinking when they named her? And of course, her whole like, I like you. I think you're handsome. Is, you know, that whole, but, you know, because I like you in pain is kind of like. Uh... I've always been partial to men who can take punishment, she says. I'm telling you, there is an amazing series to be done with the Crimson Cadre. Oh, man, I tell you, maybe only if Kristoff gets to lead them into battle. Anyway, the next page, like, um, 
I don't know what's going on. Like, like Aaron has blasted Sue from the room. Kristoff and the Human Torch are basically whispering behind Aaron's back. But it's not... There's no one else in the room for him to basically pay attention to, except maybe Ant-Man, who's also lying around like... No, but no, but Aaron's leaving is what he's like. He's oh, walking is that into it? the room. Oh, yes. okay. Okay. I st- are you sure? Because he's like saying like, I still possess more than enough to obliterate all of you unspeakable little curs, though my power is sorely dis- dis- depleted. Like he's not, he's not like everyone else leaves. Like, did he leave too? Wow. That's really, I didn't get it. Anyway, the point being, it's a page where they have to figure out a reason for them to stop fighting, and then they sort of do, which basically has the the rest of the FF uh, split up to try and do things, uh, which is locate the storage battery. Oh, that's what it is. Aaron's going to find the storage. It, it basically is an episode of Home Alone or something where you can tell I've never seen Home Alone because they're all racing through <laughs> the house of the Watcher trying to find the storage battery that holds Aaron's powers. I don't know why Aaron is just like, I'm going to go this way, and everyone else is like, I'm going to go this way. But the main takeaway from it is Aaron, who's a 12-year-old kid, manages to totally no, like... No, Kristoff is a 12-year-old kid. What did I say? Aaron. Oh, yeah, sorry. Too excited. Kristoff, character find of 1995, 12-year-old kid, actually, like, delivers some, like, beat down on Ant-Man uh, that's, where he's just basically like, ah, just reduce yourself to the size of an ant and try to keep out from underfoot. And, and so, basically, poor Scott Lang is getting owned by a 12-year-old, which I kind of hope they work into future movies. I really hope that <laughs> Marvel Cinematic Universe, if you're listening, give him a 12-year-old who totally can just, like, snap on him, and the guy just has to sit there and take it. Because he, it's one part, Scott is a decent human being and would not, like, do anything to a 12-year-old, and also because he he's pretty aware that he would lose. So... Meanwhile, where is Sue? Sue is on the asteroid. Yes, everyone's favorite. The the fifth member of the Fantastic Four, if you will. The asteroid in the negative zone that is always floating right above it that's being pulled downward to to uh, to to explode as it hits the atmospheric band of antimatter surrounding the planet below. Yes, this place which I always think of is, you know, again, people who've listened to me like blab and blab and blab. I feel there's something that's kind of crucial to understanding Reed Richards' character to this place because most of the major, ever since Stan and Jack introduced it in a story that very much feels like a Jungian thing, people keep coming back to it. And sure enough, here's Sue. Here's Reed coming in his super powered jet vest to be like, baby, I'm alive. I'm so sorry. I couldn't tell you. I, I love you. I've always loved you. And she's like, Oh, Oh my God. I'm so relieved. I'm like, wait, no. And, um, rather than jump back and forth to a few pages, let me just say, it turns out that it's the dark Raider. Uh, it's the Reed Richards with the scar and he's like, it's true, I'm the man you once knew as the Dark Raider, but that doesn't matter anymore. Basically, like, he's like, my wife is dead, your husband's dead, we used to basically sleep with the parallel Earth versions of each other. Why not? Like, think about it. It makes sense. And she's like, no, that's kind of gross. Um, it says a lot about Sue that 
Tom DeFalco continues to write her exactly as if she's possessed by malice, even though she hasn't been for some time. So, um, well, to be fair, when she was possessed by malice, it was never clear or not whether she was possessed by malice. Right, exactly. And they only so, decided that after the fact. Yeah, and so DeFalco more or less keeps with that. So I could basically jump back and forth between the two storylines, uh, but, but let me wrap wrap this one up which is basically sue and reed fight uh evil reed and evil reed is kind of like oh come on you know we belong together like i can totally defeat you you're just a dumb woman and she's like okay i'm gonna blow your power vest apart and he's like oh fuck you like my hyper harness would have totally taken us out of this debris area you're probably gonna kill us you dumb idiot the other thing that's weird is uh, Aaron has mentioned the end of the universe and reads like, yes, the big crunch is coming. The cosmic expansion generated by the Big Bang will soon go into reverse and pull all the stars and planets back into a single primordial mass. And she's like, how are you out to and the other watchers involved? They're causing it. And she's he's like a liar, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, she ends up um, pushing him off the asteroid. He no longer has his nifty power vest. So he's like falling. He's like, oh, wait, help save me. I'm so sorry that I just tried to like ambush you and smack you in the back of the head. And she's like, no, I got to save him. I've got to try and I can't. And then he basically like falls into the edge of space and dissolves. And then Sue, kind of as Reed Richards has many times before, is basically sitting on an asteroid while everyone sits around, unable to help her as she tumbles into the exploding zone and her inevitable destruction. That's the end of the issue. I, of course, have to jump back because I split the things up. And meanwhile, on the fist-fighting side of things, A... Ben gets his hash saved by Boris, who, in a weird but perhaps unsurprising uh, amount of horrifically classist language, DeFalco talks about how shocking it is that a simple peasant can figure out how to work, you know, an off-brand Klingon battlecruiser and the FF's uh, original bathtub, which appears for two panels and then never again, which is a shame. But basically, he's able to defeat and humiliate the Crimson Cadre by saying like, hey, I'll blow your shit to pieces. They're like, no, you can't. You're with the Fantastic Four. They don't kill. And he's like, are you kidding? Look at how I'm dressed. I'm clearly a minion of Doctor Doom. I have a feather in my hat. And they're like, whoa, okay, fuck you, old man. We'll be back someday. D d you know, sleep with one eye open. Meanwhile, Aaron who they've managed to keep at bay by doing such dumb stuff as shrinking him and then shrinking themselves and then running around this place. He finally gets to the power source and is going to grab it and absorb all the power. But of course, Kristoff, character find of 1995, has reversed the power flow. So it just sucks all the energy out of Aaron. And everyone's like, huh, he's a pretty good addition to the team. So they end up turning on a power monitor that of course shows Sue because how can it not? Cause Kristoff can track them. Cause he's the character find of 1995. He's 12 year old and he gets to fire a pistol. Um, they watch Sue tumble into the exploding zone. Like I said, Graham, the one thing that horrifies me and admittedly this was written in 1995 uh, and I took an astronomy class in 1986 but <laughs> the astronomy class that I taught took 
people really genuine astronomers a have a theory of the big crunch that the big bang and the big crunch was such a weird stable state you know it was believed that well maybe all things being equal with none of the amount of mass being able to escape the universe the big bang blows everything apart eventually the mass overcomes the initial spread of the explosion everything collapses back in on itself into one specific point and then re-explodes again it's sort of the big bang big crunch the regenerating universe theory that's actually kind of a legit theory seeing it in a tom defalco comic was easily the most shocking thing i've read in this run <laughs> of the fantastic four <laughs> later in the next issue they actually talk about the fact that the universe isn't as expanding as quickly as they thought it was and they blame this on i i can't remember if it's the celestials or the watchers it's blamed on the watchers that's why the celestials are trying to kill them okay Again, completely legitimate astronomical observation at that point. Like, people are still trying to figure out why the universe is not expanding as quickly as we thought that it would based on the model of everything else, which is part of where some of the explanations of dark matter and other things have come from, I guess. All of which I'm saying is, is there is, like, the slightest kernel of legit science in if, if I'm understanding it correctly, in an FF comic, and even more insanely, an FF comic by Tom DeFalco. I'm going to say one thing about this issue, and then we really should move on because it's taken us an hour to do three issues, and we have like <laughs> 12 to go. <laughs> this is the one thing I'll say. I can't believe you missed out, given your love of Christoph, that when Christoph defeats Aaron, oh, yeah, the like Christy. says, way to go, way to go, Christy old kid. Yeah, Christoph says, "I will thank you to refrain from customizing my name." That's my favorite part of the issue. I, I mean, it's I mean that just Christie is yeah. unsuitable for the rightful heir to the dynasty of doom. Yeah, the... with that, he almost convinces me of your level of obsession. Yes. Yep. Yeah, it's great. Isn't that great? There's a few other points where he refers to himself as the dynasty of doom, and I think at one point Ben actually calls him Dynasty. And I'm, which is great because it sounds like such a trashy stripper name. I, I love it. I have to say, <laughs> you're like I am here for Kristoff. I, I totally am. Don't. I'm not even shitting you. I think there's a few more Kristoff points to come that I love. Oh, the shit with Scott Lang's daughter. I cannot wait to talk about that shit. But anyway, I guess we just have to talk about that stupid 400th issue. Graham, why don't you oh, recap? No, we because don't. You can... <laughs> don't. We have to talk about Fantastic Four Seven. Oh, which no. comes in between. Oh, okay. Fine. Fantastic Force. Um, just before you start telling me about it, let me ask you, is there any Kristoff in it? There is not. All right. So I'm just going to put you on mute oh, and go get briefly. some water. Just, just Bri recap. There's, there's briefly. Just recap for the readers. I'll be over here. Jeff, listen. You don't have to mute me talking about Fantastic Force 7 because I want to do it super quickly. Okay. Because Fantastic Force 7 is the weirdest tie-in. There's only two things that are important. One, Nathan tries the Flaming Sue trick on the team, mm -hmm. and they say through it immediately, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> they follow it. Like, they're like, that's a projection. We can follow it to the source. The source is Latveria. Is this Doctor Doom? No, it's Nathan. Fuck. Which I love. I love they say through it so quickly compared with the Fantastic Four. Two, Nathan 
basically defends himself by going, no, 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 you actually have to go and, like, there's big shit happening with the Watchers, you you have to go and see the Fantastic Four, you have to help them. And they teleport to, honestly, wherever, I guess it's the moon? Where are the Fantastic Four at this point? I, I don't know, it's that weird, like, it always seems like there's a, sh- whenever there's a showdown with the Celestials, it's happening in, like, the Rocky Mountains or something like that, and I think that's where this is happening. But um, I I hate to ask because it really makes it sound like I care. But who rescues Sue and how? Well, that's what I was going to say. So oh, they, they get they jump to where the Fantastic Four are. They see all of them looking at the monitor, and as we see in the Fantastic Four issue in three ninety nine, the Fantastic Four are like, if only we could help. And Antara is just like, of course we can fucking help. I'm a teleporter. I oh. just help rescues her. Oh, okay. That's it. Got it. There is a mild when Huntara shows up. Sue's like, I'll fight you. And Huntara's like, I'm not fighting you anymore. I know I used to fight you, but I don't do that. And just rescues her. And it takes like maybe a page. Ah, great. Great. Um, and then that, that leads into a, a double page spread that doesn't tie in exactly with what you see in FF400. Hmm. The final double page spread is all of the Watchers standing up in space and staring off against the Celestials. Huh, wow. Which doesn't tie in with what you see in 400. Mm -hmm. But it does basically lead into the, oh, the Watchers are fighting the Celestials. Right. Plot. I will say this in in slightly more depth than when I do the Baxter Bungalow from Fantastic Force, which I'm I haven't done, and I apologize to Patreon people, but it is coming. But one of the things that's, that's noticeable about this is Fantastic Force is a better comic than Fantastic Four at this point. Wow. Noticeably so. Yeah, I believe it. Weirdly, because honestly, seeing some of the characters in Fantastic Four Hundred. And I say that, but it's like, I don't really necessarily care about Vibraxis or Devalor. Um, but I'm sort of, I'm like, oh, fuck, have I grown fond of Huntera and Teenage Franklin Richards? Kind of, I guess I'm, I guess it's I... Su- it's super yeah, strange, but, yeah. but like, just generally, like, it looks better, mm-hmm. it reads better, it's faster, and it doesn't treat its heroes like idiots. Wow. Unlike that's four. Yeah. So so you're like, oh, I, I think this is a better comic, which is a really, really strange thing. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I want to say about Fantastic Four 7. Spoilers for everyone about what's coming up in the rest of this podcast. I'm going to be as quick about Atlantis Rising and Fantastic Four 9. Great. Don't really need to know them. Yeah. Fantastic Four 400. Jeff, we made it. We did. We made it 400 issues, Holy which God. is kind of insane to think about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. You know, the weird part is, Graham, is the sad part where I'm like, holy shit. Because a lot of these, not all of them, <laughs> uh, it's 400 issues, some of which I've read twice. Like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, well, I mean, there's the one thing, issues that I read as a kid, but the number of times where I, like, read these and then had to try and reread them, you know, so that I could talk about them coherently, it is kind of amazing. Go us. Go team us. Unfortunately, this is how we get to celebrate by trying to recap Fantastic Four 400. Even the Watchers can die. <laughs> Notable for a few reasons. One, uh, it is a team up between the Fantastic Four and Fantastic Force. Right. And they do essentially split into teams that combine members of the two teams. Right. It's kind of surprising in that because it doesn't really forefront the Fantastic Four. Can I mention one other thing that I totally forgot about? The issue 400 is where I realized that, and this is sad, that Ralph Macchio left the book as editor. And it, it's he said it in the, in the letters page of the previous issue. 
uh, oh, is it three ninety nine? Okay, then yeah, sorry. Wherever he mentions it in the letters page, I'm like, oh shit, right? Because because Neil Yamatov or Yamtov, who who is now the editor, mentions the fact that Mike Rockowitz had taken over for helped with the transition, and sure enough, Rockowitz it, it uh, edited like three ninety seven, and I don't know if you know if you bothered to look this up, but like. 396 which I went to go check out which is Makio's last issue like Makio has been on the book for like all through DeFalco Simonson Engelhart yeah you know maybe the end of Burn I'm not quite sure but I want to say that Carlin was on right through the end of Burn but I could be wrong well he says after almost 100 issues he does actually have a little goodbye thing down here where and he mentions that he's passing it on to Mike Rockwitz who doesn't who was only there for like one issue so um and he's basically like hey keep reading keep writing and keep flaming on folks but like issue 396 which we were too busy bashing in the last cast for being terrible which it was is uh, a stirring tale of courageous hope and bitter betrayal produced by Tom DeFalco writer, Paul Ryan Pensler, Dan Bulanati inker, Steve Dutro letterer, John Kalitz colorist, and Ralph Macchio waste. Is that kind of weird? Like, that's kind of weird. Super weird. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that. That's like not really germane to the issue at hand other than, oh, yeah, right. A, Neil Yamtob's here. And B, Ralph Macchio gives himself the strangest departing credit box I've ever seen, even by Marvel comic standards. So Yeah, that's super weird, yep. right? Yep. And to read into that a little bit, you have to wonder how much DeFalco has been trying to take over. Yeah. If it goes to Mike Rockwitz and then immediately goes to Nell Yomtov like an issue later. Right. That suggests that that book is not in good shape in terms of editorial. Yeah, yeah. That the, the, if the editor, editors can be that are that quickly disposed of and it doesn't seem like there's there's no changes at the front of the book. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, uh, yes, so issue 400, even the Watchers can die. Watchers die-ish, but much more importantly, a Celestial gets blown up in this issue. Yeah. That is by far the most interesting thing, even if the reasoning for the Celestial getting blown up is a fucking mess. Mm-hmm. The one who has been referenced in the last couple of issues appears here as a comatose giant Watcher. <laughs> Who is guarded by the other Watchers. That's right. There's a giant Watcher who is literally lying prone on the ground, surrounded by other Watchers who are smaller, and then Celestials who are floating in the air. Not the scene that we left off in Fantastic Four 7 at all, but yep. just, just go with it. And it is explained that the One is essentially the ultimate Watcher. He is the Watcher who's receiving all the information from people. Is it on a planet or on all planets? My understanding I, is, is yeah, they're all feeding it back to him. Like every watcher has been feeding. He is the recipient of the sum total. Oh, like all of it. Right? Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, I, but but the very process of that mm-hmm. somehow weirdly is fucking up with the natural order of things. Therefore, the celestials want to destroy him. The Watchers, of course, don't want him to be destroyed. Therefore, we have the standoff. The standoff has been monkeyed with, shall we say, by Uatu and potentially Aaron, but it's not quite clear what part Aaron really is playing in this versus has been manipulated to play. 
Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, the two of them have combined to brought in the Fantastic Four and Fantastic Force into this. While the standoff is going on, Iron is building the Ultimate Converter, which is a version of the Ultimate Nullifier technology, which is going to save him when the Big Crunch slash Big Bang 2 happens by converting part of his space into a pocket universe that he is going to survive. The team splits in two to try and A, stop Aaron doing his whole pocket universe thing and B, stop the Celestials killing the big one. Yep. It's it's a thing. Like, I could go into the, the individual parts of this issue and I'm sure there are things that you're going to pick out, but what you need to know are two things. One, the team that goes to confront Aaron is confronted by villains from the Fantastic Four's past. Mm-hmm. Pools from the previous 400 issues, although no one is quite blunt enough to say that. Mm-hmm. But to all intents and purposes, that's what they're doing. They're having the anniversary issue part of it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the other team... Oh, God, I hate this so much. They literally... Oh. So Nathan <laughs> decides that Sue's invisibility force fields come from somewhere that has an additional vibrational frequency as where the Celestials come from, because they've previously suggested the Celestials actually come from outer space. And when I say outer space, I mean an additional dimension, not just something above the Earth. Yeah. And their essence is hosted in armor, and, but they're not really here. But Sue's powers come from the same vibrational field, and therefore Sue can fuck with the Celestials, which she does by making a hole in the Celestial, and then they climb in. And even saying it makes it sound more ridiculous. Than oh that my actually. god! Oh, they I don't know. Yeah, they wander through a Celestial, basically, are met with like weird things that make absolutely no sense. Yeah, until Sue meets a glowing light that she touches that turns into Sue, but a Sue with square word balloons that explains the origin of why the Celestials want to kill the One, and Sue lets the Celestials kill the One, and then destroys the Celestial to restore the cosmic balance of power. Mm -hmm. The end. <laughs> oh, I, I should no. I should say there's there's a postscript which is yes. Iwatu says, um, "Well, it's okay because there's going to be a new one. Mm-hmm. Like he he he'll just restore himself. But so will the celestial, and we'll do this again in a few millennia." And Sue's like, "That's what you fucking wanted. You just wanted us here to delay it. Fine. You just want us here to delay it because by that point humanity will have evolved enough that we'll have a say." Mm-hmm. What the fuck does that mean? But anyway, Sue then says, you have to, you, we helped you, you need to help us. He pops over, he kills Aaron. And in doing so, the older extra baldy watcher shows up again and is, is very upset. Says that he's broken the bond by killing a brother watcher and says, thus with the full blessing of the, the high tribunal, I cast you out. You are watcher no more. You're hereby banished from your race, Uatu. A pariah to be shunned and ridiculed. This seems to have literally no yes. impact whatsoever. Yeah. Because he still has all these powers because he just teleports everyone home. Yep the end jeff i know i know there's going to be something you're going to pick from this and be like yep you're you're missing this this great thing you've you've totally bypassed this this wonderful detail (laughs) just let's get it over with because this is like a weird overlong attempt to go cosmic that that 
doesn't make sense. Well, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. But of course, a I'm a big fan of the going cosmic idea. It's ridiculous that that there is a like three pages earlier, uh, Elijah like literally in passing explains a theory about how the celestials exist, like more or less as beings of energy in hyperspace. And then three pages later, it turns out that Sue's uh, invisible force field is part of that. I think that that's, um, that's really sad and hilarious. The thing <laughs> that really sucks is, of course, Lysha's whole point is, is that basically the Celestials are just suits of armor and that more or less they're containment units for how they exist in this dimension. And they don't, in a way, really exist at all. If someone had given a shit, like if someone had really been caring and, and this is an amazing thing to say for a creative team that has been together for, you know, again, f over four years now, if the creative team had been on the same page, I kind of think that there's some cool, there's, there is a sketch of a cool cosmic idea here, which is that the Celestials um, and the Watchers are more or less two figures uh, in opposition to one another. Um, well, sure. I, like so much of the Devalkorion thing, yeah. there are really, really strong ideas that are just used ineptly. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. It's like, it's a shame that's that's done ineptly because it's sort of like, oh, you kind of have Jack Kirby's first cosmic Marvel creation and his last cosmic Marvel creations. And they're basically kind of in opposition to one another slash mirror images of each other, blah, 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 blah. I'm down with it. The idea that Sue's invisible force field, which everyone sort of come, keeps trying to make Sue the most important, impressive member of the team. And gosh, isn't she, she's so special and she's the best. Here, it's just sort of a tossed off idea that her invisible force field is essentially a manifestation of the same power as the Celestials is potentially kind of cool like it's a shame that clearly a no one were was will read these comics or wants to ever acknowledge that they read these comics because that would be the sort of thing that a continuity continuity nerd could return to and have some fun with uh and then finally the thing that's a shame is defalco's like the suits of armor are just containment units ryan is like okay so we're doing a fantastic voyage you know, uh, through the body of a celestial. And one of the things that cracked me up and that I liked, and it, it says something about how inapposite Ryan's work is to Jack Kirby, is those are clearly supposed to be like Kirby crackle dots running through the veins of the celestial. And there's a point where they come up against a valve-like structure that is clearly supposed to be, you know... Kirby's most abstract like it's all supposed to be this tribute to Kirby that Paul Ryan is the guy doing it like like against Ryan, uh, DeFalco's own instincts and yet he still can't carry it off like it's really weird isn't it so well there's I mean there's so much weird for me at least the understanding that the the celestial armor is a containment unit mm -hmm. would suggest that what's contained within is not physical Mm -hmm. But they they walk through it. Yes, and it's like it's yeah. That make I mean that literally makes no sense to me. No, it it doesn't make any sense. There's points where they're fighting antibodies and cilia and other things that clearly don't 
can't ex like it makes no sense it makes no sense whatsoever that they have these analogs the whole point with sue and the the counter sue is ridiculous like it's just a shame it's just well and also the the resolution mm -hmm. makes no sense yeah like if the entire reason that they're to stop the celestials killing the one they i mean they literally do the opposite <laughs> No, right. They, they let the Celestials kill the one. Well, and yet, the end of it is just like them being like, oh, well, better luck next time. Well, it, not for the first time. This mm -hmm. creative team like completely undermines their own stakes. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, again, that sort of seems because DeFalco's making up the stakes. I mean, part of me is like, well, clearly, Graham, he didn't have like three years on this storyline, except he also is, you know completely bullshitted out on a, most of his other storylines that have been four years. I think the thing that you and I are overlooking is the idea that the celestial that kills him, that Sue breaks into, is the exterminator is supposed to be the one's opposite number. Like, he's not just a celestial, and they just show it only by virtue of dint of him being big, but he's... He's the celestial celestial. Oh, and, sure. Right. No, I, I, and so I get the idea that. And is. And that's why her destroying the celestial, like, right. you know, evens the balance back up. Exactly. But it doesn't. No, of course not. <laughs> you know, there's nothing about that actually tracks. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, we're spending far too much time in this issue considering we have A, so much more to go through, yes. and B, it's terrible. There is a backup story called In Memoriam, in which it's a funeral for Reed. Because Sue has, I guess, accepted that Reed is dead, yeah. even though she hasn't. Yeah. Like, th this is ridiculous. It's really an excuse to have a recap of the origin in the 400th issue. Which is hilarious. I mean, it makes sense that they do it. But I have to say, that also cracked me up. Um, because, like, uh, this is a horrible thing. I know you're like, God damn it, Jeff, just shut up. I'll wrap this up in under two minutes. There's an episode of uh, God Help Me that I'm going to say this, Clerks, the animated series. It's like the second issue where they are trapped in like a freezer together. And it's it's a spoof of bottle episodes. So they keep giving flashbacks to their previous adventures. But because it's the second episode of the show, the only thing they can keep flashing back to is the first adventure. So it's like they keep doing that thing of like, oh, remember when you... And so I swear to God, I laugh so hard at the idea that Sue gets together with the rest of the FF and all they can remember is their origin again. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... <laughs> I just love the idea that it's like, these are people that have only spent two days together in their whole life. Their origin and today. And that's it. You know, anyway. So, also, I have to say, if you're lucky enough to read the GIT core, there's also a honest-to-God three-page essay by Michael Martz that also made me laugh because I don't know if this was still a, 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 a cliche and a joke back in 1995, but he literally does the, what does it mean to be the world's greatest comic magazine? The dictionary defines comic as, like, I died. He spends four paragraphs doing the... Look, he has three pages to fill. I don't know what your problem is. I know. I loved it so much. I'm like, holy fucking shit. He's totally book reporting this. I can't believe it. Oh, my God. It was... That made me laugh like nobody's business. So, anyway, that was FF400. There's one thing from FF400 that is worth mentioning in light of what we're about to talk about. At one point, Nathan, after the Watcher has been fired... Mm -hmm. It's basically like, oh, I wonder what happens to Watcher's house. 
which is literally where Atlantis Rising 1 starts. Oh, okay. Thank you. Atlantis Rising 1 is amazing. <laughs> Here is the plot. As a result of things happening in the Namor book, Morgana Le Fay has decided she is going to A, bring Atlantis up from the water, and B, she's going to rule Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Entirely separately from that. <laughs> God. Nathan Richards teleports himself into the Watcher's house where he trips the security alarm <laughs> that makes the Watcher's house fold in on itself in a black hole, which destabilizes the Atalan. Oh, no way. Yes. <sighs> which makes the ruling council of Atalan decide that they have to take emergency measures and their emergency measures are shrinking Atalan down <laughs> to a microscopic city. And putting it in a bottle. I love that. Yes. yes. Which is then discovered by the Fantastic Four. Oh, boy. Oh, God. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> Meanwhile, back on Earth, Mark Lafay, because these storylines are completely separate, the first issue. Mark Lafay is, is fucking around with Namor. She defeats Namor. Namor, for some reason, has the, the Black Knight sword. I honestly don't understand what's going on there at all. Hmm. But he drops it. That will become important later on in the storyline. But Thor decides to investigate, and Thor flies towards where Atlantis is and gets mind controlled by Mar- Morgana Le Fay. The end. Okay. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, that's amazing. I have to say that uh, it's, it's probably... Because if you come into Fantastic 401 cold uh it opens with like sue attacking like inhumans and then the next page is the rest of the ff hitting the inhumans that's that's true i did actually miss that part out which oh, okay. is important when they pick up atlan they is a tiny little miniature city and they're like we have to teleport out members of the inhumans to help us decide what to do with atlan and it just so happens that maximus is among that crew right that's that's the, the okay. end of that but it right. doesn't lead into the 401 at all. Oh, no, really? Oh, my yeah. God. It literally, the last you see is, is Maximus showing up, and 401, as you're about to explain, starts with uh, the Fantastic Four in the Shrunken City, <laughs> which does not happen in the last Fantastic <laughs> at all. That is so bad. That is so bad. I actually do love the first four pages for, of Fantastic Four 401. Actually, I also love the uh, inside cover with the ad for McKillie Culkin's The Page Master, but I won't put you guys through that. But um, in part because it's it's horrible. It's horrible. And I'm not just saying that because there's not enough Kristoff in the first four pages, although it's probably true. I love that Maximus, one of the people that is uh, helping Maximus, is Nebulo. And what I love is is that this is a book that has had a bad guy talking to a figure in the shadows for something like three years, four years, it's a staple. It's never the same shadowy figure. Anyway, so they just create the next level of that, which is Nebulo, who's just a silhouette. And it cracks me up. So every time Maximus is talking to this guy, I'm like, who's this supposed to be? Is this supposed to be Reed Richards? Is this Dr. Doom? I'm like, oh no, it's literally just a human silhouette. That cracks me up. 
It also cracks me up that the Inhumans decide to save Adelan because they read old Superman comic books, and so they put their city in a fucking bottle. And then I love that, like, fucking Tom DeFalco and or Paul Ryan have this great page where Maximus is leering down at them from the city, laughing and huge, you know, ha ha ha. And then the next panel is him, next page is him being like, oh, it's too bad I can't see my enemies down in this little bottled city because they're too small. Hilarious. I just love that. I just love that Tom DeFalco's like had something that has bugged the shit out of him about the bottled city of Candor for probably about five decades now, and this is his attempt. He's like, you know what? I had an ant city, and you can't tell the individual ants apart. Bottle city of Candor is bullshit. Anyway, he also very quickly explains, like in in a like two page flashback sequence, that he did shrink them down. You just never saw it before, but for some reason he didn't shrink down the Human Torch. Why? Yes. Really? Who, who the fuck knows? Yeah. He's going to brainwash the Human Torch, not the rest of them, just the Human Torch. Right. So sure, he also didn't shrink down Boris, right. the faithful manservant to Kristoff, who is quite clearly someone else entirely. You will find out before the end of these issues, but yeah. Oh, for the love of fucking God, really, it's just, oh, shit, there's some bullshit with Morgan Le Fay that, do we really need to go into that part of the crossover oh, at all? I mean, the, I think that the one thing that I think is great is is that, well, two things. One, that I had a, a feeling while reading the art for the comic, and I'll t- tell you about it two issues or an issue from now, when that feeling weirdly comes true but i've had i honest to god was reading this thinking oh they would rather be doing blank and then two issues or one issue later they actually literally do it which is amazing but also what i love is that morgan lefay is like i've got all this power i'm going to bring back atlantis and then of course reed richard uh, reed richard nathan richard's time fucker shows up and is like hey baby <laughs> Like Nathan Richard shows up and starts macking on Morgan Le Fay and she's like, huh, tell me more. Meanwhile, there's some other dude who's also wearing ugly headwear whose name's Arcadius or Arcadius or something like that. So he is a member of the Inhumans who's trying to argue that he like they have claimed to Atlantis. Oh, right. That's right. He's a member of their genetic council and is doing that. Yeah, it's kind of like the way they try and bind these two stories together yeah. is genuinely confusing to me. It's honestly, they're like, well, both Atlan and Lance start with AT. So, <laughs> so this, this will work because they really don't bend, uh, yeah. bind together at all. Yeah. The short version of the Margana Lefay's subplot in this entire issue is that she will send Thor after the Fantastic Four. Yes. To, in order to retrieve Atalan. That's that's all you really need to know about all of that. Uh, Thor is not the only person after Atalan, because so is Nathan Richards, because why the fuck shouldn't he be? Yes, exactly. Oh, I, li- I I actually like flipped through this. I'm like, oh, right. Actually, Nathan Richards' time fucker does not try and court Morgan Le Fay in this issue. In this issue... No, that's, that's the next issue. He's, right. He, he shows up that. invisible and tries to steal... <laughs> human city like no one's gonna notice which i just think is great like there's this scene where the city's like rising up in the air and both maximus the mad and the human torch neither of whom are the sharpest tools in the shed generally are like what's happening and thank god like 
Torch figures out the way to show that it's Nathan Richards. But, oh my god. Oh, we should say, the reason the Torch is there even is that he is brainwashed by Maximus. Yes, which is also hilarious, because there's one point where, like, Maximus is, like, saying something like, my my subtle machinations are slowly reprogramming. Oh yeah, the mind of the Human Torch is being subtly and delicately reprogrammed. And I'm like, oh man, that's the Human Torch. Like, that's that guy's dumb as a bag of hammers. Anyway, the whole idea that, that Maximus picked the Human Torch is still weird. Um, I hope he gets explained throughout the crossover. Nope, <laughs> nope it doesn't. Not only that, the way he's been brainwashed changes significantly through the crossover no as well. No way, really? Let's, oh let's, just, let's just ignore all of that. Okay. Anyway, the FF escape the bottle city, but they're tiny, and then they're chased around by a brainwashed Human Torch, because of course they are. That's the way that this story goes. <laughs> Meanwhile, the actual royal family of the Inhumans have decided maybe hanging around in a circus was not the best thing in, in the grand scheme of things. Maybe they should have like actually been fucking doing their jobs. Yeah. But, but who knows? There is... All this shenanigans going on when, as you said, Nathan Richards tries to invisibly steal a city just by lifting it up. And when the Human Torch tries to stop him, he is teleported away. This leads into the Fantastic Force issue. But we're not there yet because as the FF have somehow magically managed to defeat Maximus and these people and grow to full size, they are then attacked by Thor to be continued. Yeah. This fucking issue... Jesus Christ. Anyway, Fantastic Force number nine is where the Human Torch part of this continues. And they significantly change the brainwashing. Really? In Fantastic Force, he's not really been brainwashed. He has been brainwashed, but he doesn't know he's been brainwashed. Because in Fantastic Four, he's brainwashed in the point where he's like, I am obeying Maximus. Maximus is my boss now. I will do whatever Maximus says. Mm -hmm. And in Fantastic Force... He has been brainwashed in that he now sees everyone as an enemy. So he sees Nathan Richards as Doctor Doom. He sees Fantastic Force as Doctor Doom's robots, mm. which makes much more sense. Yeah. But it's not what it was left as. Wow. So in other words, even by Marvel's notorious sloppy-ass crossovers, this is one sloppy-ass crossover. Yes. The All you really need to know about Fantastic Force number nine is that Franklin uses his mind powers to essentially win, to unbrainwash the right. Human Torch. He does so in such a way that will later show up in other Fantastic Force comics. When he gets in a fight about Nate with Nathan, Nathan fucks up Franklin's brain powers. Mm. So Franklin starts leaking mm. alternate versions of himself into reality. Mm-hmm. Which I think shows up in the next Fantastic Four issue. That's right. Unless I'm, I'm yeah. completely misremembering. Right. And ultimately leads to Johnny leaving the Fantastic Four to lead Fantastic Force. So that that is the fallout from Fantastic Force. But the only thing that really matters is Johnny is shocked back to reality. Good to know. Wow. Not much. Well, I was fascinated by how much 402 two follows picks up directly from 401 yeah right it's That's... kind of a, yeah the, the end of 401 is thor standing on top of of the the spaceship and the beginning of 402 is thor standing on top of the spaceship mm -hmm. which is kind of amazing when you think that there's like three crossover issues between the two wow that's amazing to me but they just, like, I guess, were like, no, well, the Fantastic Four story stays in Fantastic Four. Mm -hmm. 402 is called By Our Friends Besieged. 
which I, I think it actually we should have said 401 was called at the mercy of maximus we're back at the period where everything is an exclamation point i don't know if you've noticed i hadn't no with thor in i think we can safely say his ugliest costume oh absolutely in fact i really want to give it up for the double page spread pages two and three of issue 402 by our friends besieged it is maybe the ugliest comics page i think i've seen in some time everything about it from the inept panel progression to thor's awful outfit to the really bad admittedly i'm looking at some shitty reproduction uh, uh weirdly enough in the git edition but it just all looks really bad and amateurish you would not know that these guys had been making comics for at least the last five years if not much 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 longer it's hideous yeah it's it's impressively bad the ff does have a wonderful way of getting thor off the top of their spaceship which is to turn it upside down so he falls off <laughs> did love that <laughs> which is simultaneously like so dumb and absolutely <laughs> wonderful uh then when he is he's chasing after them they blow a nuclear device mm-hmm. up yeah. Um, but far enough away that he's not killed, only stunned, which mm-hmm. is equally amazing. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah. It That whole action sequence is is crazy for just how lame it is and how fake the stakes are. Um, and again, how much um, Sue Storm is like, just still might as well be Malice Incarnate. But... Uh, so well, yes, she really, especially in that, like out of nowhere, she's like, just fucking blow up a nuke. Yeah, and the other characters like, that's a bit extreme. And no one's like, are you sure you're not still possessed by Malice? Seriously, seriously. So anyway, but it turns out she had just brilliant thought, a uh, brilliant planning. Um, meanwhile, Morgan Le Fay uh, shows up. She args her way out of out of her throne because her psychic link to Thor has been shattered. Um, you know the 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 her the inhuman dudes who are kind of like i don't know i guess allied themselves with her uh are like oh no that's terrible i guess and she shows up to find <laughs> triton who's been like stuck in a big fishbowl i don't know why it was important that they show that to us i assume you know because you read the crossovers but here comes time fucker so triton was fucking with morgan levy at the very in in the first issue and enterprising one okay so i'm guessing i'm guessing it's followed through from that maybe it also continues in the the name rushes i didn't read okay all right uh so nathan richards shows up uh a prisoner who was brought here with triton which i don't know anyway Nathaniel Richards, time fucker, a.k.a. a vagabond of time and space. I mean, come on. How can you not love this guy? They just called him a time hobo. Like Nathaniel Richards, time hobo shows up and is like, hey, uh, I bet you'd want me to work with you because I possess the scientific expertise to restore the city and its people to this proper size. Of course, I'm like this. I think that's like. That's Adelon, you know, and I don't know why she'd be interested in that since her whole deal is Atlantis. But anyway, there's competing dudes with ugly helmets. Uh, Lord Arcadius is is trying to grab the roused about carnies known as the Inhumans Royal Family via Holofax, which I didn't I didn't realize how funny that is. Boy, that's 
Oh boy, a hollow fax. <laughs> or whole You know, it's, it's the next want. generation of fax. <laughs> I just, I just love the idea that they're like, you know, because when, fax, when fax isn't now, modern enough. Oh my you have god! You've got to have a holofax. I just love the idea that like Lord Arcadius is like smushing his face onto like a copier and kind of squeezing it across, and is like, "You have to listen to me." Okay, hold on a second. I'm going to tell you. It's just the funniest fucking like. Don't you know how the fax machine works? Anyway. So, Namor, who has long hair, like, who we'd previously seen threatening, uh, th- like, to be killed by the guards who found him floating unconsciously, have brought him back to Vashti, and uh, they talk about Liron, the new king, who's basically like a more butch submariner um, than the long-haired submariner that we have Submariner's like, okay, don't worry, I'm going to invade and I'll take vengeance on the people who have destroyed our kingdom. And Vashti's like, what are you talking about? Like, no, we're we're completely fucked. We don't have the strength for war. We just need someone. We need someone who's going to be uh, a wise and compassionate leader as opposed to a blood-crazed warrior. Is that going to be you or not? And, you know, good question. The answer is not. Yeah, the answer is no. later on, he attacks, like, the Inhumans when the Inhumans show up, and they're like, let's have peace, and he's like, I will fuck you up. <laughs> I accuse the Inhumans of genocide, he says, after jumping through a window. Yes, which is the best. Like, I love that he changed, he chooses to be, like, they're like, where are you going to be, like, a wise leader or a bloodthirsty goon? So, there's so much great stuff. Like, they're basically trying to figure out what the fuck to do about Atlantis. So, they're meeting in England, uh, I guess because it's Morgan Le Fay. The Inhumans pop up, and they have to explain how they were able to know where in England to pop up, which is awesome. And the Namer pops through the window. And then the most boring fight between uh, Black Bolt and Submariner, the, the duel nobody wanted to see goes on for like several pages uh the comics find of 1995 Kristoff actually makes fun of Ant-Man who cannot fight Lockjaw because he can't reach his reducing gas which I think is great again <laughs> everything about that is gold there's a weird thing of Morgan Le Fay doing like a crazy like here I am lounging on my bed while taking counsel right. and now I'm eating grapes <laughs> And again, because they're more succulent, she says, yes. which again is an interlude that has no purpose. No, none. Like it's one of those things where, like, it's almost as if they lost, like Ryan and Defalco, like lost the fact, the script via Holofax, and they're like, "What's <laughs> happening on this page? I don't remember. I'm just gonna make something up." Okay, that's fine. So there's a great panel where, like, DeFalco does the whole, like, huh, this fight's really dull. Let me, like, manufacture some sort of Stan Lee levels of <gasps> higher threat by basically Oh, you're saying, talking about the, the one that says this is the final assault and only one shall survive? <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. After one of them's like, oh no, Black Bolt's going to do his master blow. Oh no, Namor also gathers his strength for one last lethal assault. This is it. The final assault, and then they basically both go to punch each other, punch each other, and then Sue has put a force field in between them, and is, and so, like literally, it's no point. There's nothing. There's no. There's no nothing. It's Tom DeFalco realized that the fight had no stakes, and tries to inject something at the end, 
and it's so dashed off, it almost feels like a comical parody. Uh, Lord Arcadius shows up with his big glowing head and teleports the Inhumans away, and uh, Namor starts to bitch to Sue about how he would have gotten victory if she hadn't intervened, and he's like, she's like, give it a rest. And then, of course, Thor shows up wearing... I swear to God, the fact that they were like, you know what th- would make Thor's outfit look better if he discovered the mystery, the miracles of polar underwear. Like just the fact that he's wearing like white long underwear now, it's just, it's just. It's, I, I, I honestly have no idea who thought that outfit was a good idea. It's just bad. I, I don't know what era it came from, but it's terrible. It's really, it's shit. It's real shit. Yeah, that's my and, recap. And Thor, Thor, Thor shows up and says, "You guys, let's all have a big fight." Yep. Exactly. Like, that's it. And let me tell you, uh, Atlantis Rising number two is a big fight. Wow. And I wish I could give more of a recap than that, but there's not one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's a big fight that pretty much the end is them being like, and Atlantis went back under the water and Atlantis will be fine the end. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's astonishingly bad. And fascinatingly enough, it takes two writers and two artists to do it. Really? Oh, yeah. that's fucked. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it's really. I mean, Atlantis Rising is not a good crossover, mm-hmm. shall we say? But the sheer lack of attention, care, anything given to that final issue is honestly shocking. Mm-hmm. Because it is an issue-long fight scene with like one wrap-up page where they're like, and everything was fine. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, horrifying. it's it's. It's just really, really bad. But hey, it could be worse. It could be FF 403 through 405. (laughs) You know, Graham, you say that, but there's things to love about 403 and 405. I think 404 is maybe a waste. I don't remember. You're saying that because 403 actually has the Ant-Man dating thing, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's the best. FF 403 is called Things to Come, and it opens with Kristoff. Jeff Lester's character find of 1995 <laughs> creating a new Ant-Man costume for Scott Lang after pointing out Scott quite reasonably that Scott's useless because all he can do is shrink down. <laughs> so this way, he, at least he's got like a suit of armor that can do other shit. Again, I love the fact that 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 Scott just can't help but like be cracked on by a 12-year-old, and the 12-year-old's right. And I also kind of love the fact that, like, let's face it, who knows where they're going to go with Kristoff later? I don't, be honest, I don't want to know. But right now, Kristoff is kind of like the Damian Wayne of 1995, because... Oh, no, completely. Yeah. He is like the snarky kid. Yeah. Who's also kind of right with his snark. Exactly. He's right with his snark, and he, at least at this point, and this is part of what I love about him, he's not entirely bad. You know what I mean? Like his whole thing about, you know, I'm going to give you a new outfit. And when Scott says, I don't know what to say. And he's like, I didn't think you would. Sadly, even I cannot increase the limited intellect. I love that stuff. But on the other hand, even though there's a way in which he is arguably making Scott a better costume so that Scott can be a better co-fighter, he's actually, again, apparently doing him solid. So um, then the whole weird sequence where, okay. So anyway, I guess I'm recapping this one because 
I love so much of this. Character find of <laughs> 1995, Christoph. First thing he does, he makes a hideous looking but much improved Ant-Man costume for Scott, makes fun of him, and then Kristoff uh, says, uh, sorry, Scott says, look, Kristoff, I'm meeting a very special young lady. Please don't mention anything about me being the Ant-Man in front of her. Uh, cut to... Ben yelling at uh, Johnny because Johnny's quitting the team to join Fantastic Force. Uh, cut back to um, Scott Lang picking up Cassie, uh, his daughter, and um, they have like a talk. And she's like, put me down, Daddy. You're treating me like a child. This thing that's scary is she looks like she's being drawn like she's four. Like, I just, yes, I know they're supposed super to be 12 weird. I... years old, yeah. but... She's honestly drawn as if she's like you know, like three or four. Yeah, yeah. She she and Kristoff look six years old at tops. And I think part of what I think is would be interesting or funny is is like she's walking out at she's walking in as Johnny Storm walks out, and Johnny's like, "Oh hey, it's a real pleasure to meet such a pretty lady. Do you have a smile for me? Come on, if you show me your happy face." I'll show you mine when draws like a flaming, like smiley face in the, in the air. I have to say Johnny comes off like creepy beyond all level of creeps in those three panels. And then of course, Cassie's like charmed. Like, did you hear daddy? The human torch called me pretty me. Um, Scott saying he sure did. And it's tough to say on his, the expression on his face if he's creeped out or not, but it's nothing compared oh, he, to the level looks, of creepiness. He looks creeped out. He yeah, really he does. does. He totally does. Johnny totally comes off like the flaming pedo in the, those three panels, and it's kind of creepy. But again, then you get Kristoff, who again, looks six, kisses Cassie's hand, says, it is an honor to meet you, my dear. Please allow me the privilege of personally escorting you and holding her hand and walking off with her. Cut to Scott being like, Basically, I don't. The little tin plated terror insults me, and now he's hitting on my baby. I just. It's such a pile of wrong. Keep in mind the fact that Kristoff's dad is probably time fucker, and you really don't want to know where this is going. Like, it's just amazing. Anyway, in the part of the comic that nobody cares about, uh. <laughs> There's some summing up about like whatever happened in Atlantis attacks. And then uh, Namer does a thing underwater, which is great because I swear to God, it is the most generic <laughs> submariner thing. Does a thing underwater. He just, well, he does. He does that thing that he does. Like once every seven appearances, he has to show up in the rubble of Atlantis and be like, where are the survivors? Where have they gone? I will never stop searching for them. And I'm like, are you shitting me? Like, I haven't read this issue before I read this for the podcast, but do you know how many times I've read that fucking page? Like, seven goddamn times. Anyway, so what's great is, um, the other thing that I sort of love is, so, Kristoff uh, is showing Cassie all around while continuing to insult Scott. And he wants to he wants Boris to come and, and get drinks for his lovely companion in him. And and he's great because he's like, I'm truly surprised you invited your daughter here, Lang. The FF have many enemies. This is no place for a child. And of course, Scott's just kind of like, uh, you're right. If it were up to me, I'd ban all kids, which is nothing like, again, the fact that Scott that it's not even a fair fight between him and Kristoff is hilarious. Anyway. 
back to the rest of the pages that nobody cares about and i mean this almost literally we meet another one of those like um archaeologist dudes with a pipe that pop up a lot some reason in defalco's run and it's a chance for uh first we meet the uh miko i guess it's called miko who's like uh you know a swab son of a bitch in a hat who's basically like got all the rest of the team working for him and they're more or less a bunch of mercenaries they've discovered the temple of the ancient sun demons which is an enormous temple of like guys who look like the thing standing in aztec armor which isn't surprising considering uh the professor is staring at dozens and dozens of statues of little Ben Grimm looking motherfuckers and those of us who have been trapped reading this book for several hundred issues are like holy shit Tom DeFalco is coming back to the subplot that Tom DeFalco did not care about exactly. 3 years Support earlier we all forgot about yeah like everyone's like who cares there was the one point like literally I think around the time that they get flashed to the future and they see the ruins of Four Freedoms Plaza and everything um, where they had the opportunity to find out what was going on with Ben Grimm and they never followed it up well guess what they're following it up now and it's the most boring thing imaginable you would think on the again in that way that DeFalco is clearly like you think that you know where this story's going I'm going to make sure that you don't uh even though in order to do so i have to come up with like just sheer lunacy so essentially we would all think considering ben had all these like statues of his face that they found in these ancient relics it's like oh it's time traveling ben Grimm again hardly surprising this is the dude who turned out to be blackbeard the pirate after all you know back in ff number four i think right or is that five yeah no, it it's, might even be poor. It's not FF number two. Uh, I don't remember. Two, three? What's the one where they flip through time? It's the first appearance of Doctor Doom, so it's got to be, I think it's four or five. Because he pops I'll take your word for it. Anyway, Ben Grimm is Blackbeard, the pirate. So it's hardly surprising we know where this is going. He's actually going to be like the king of the Aztec gods and the protector of them, right? No. There's like an alien machine that you put people in and they get blasted with rays and they turn into basically things. So, except they talk with hyphens, which is just the world's worst. So, uh, I don't even remember how everyone gets bored enough to end up over there. The other part of the comic that I like that is not related to Kristoff is, is like Johnny goes on a date with a woman who's more or less kind of like giving him a hard time and he kind of likes it. And she's like bantering with him and boom, it's, it's, it's Laura Lige. Green. Yeah, it's Laura Green. It, I it, forgot. It's that, the woman who was yeah. on the, the dig and everything. Yeah, he's been after her for a while, Jeff. Well, see, exactly. But it's been so long that I forgot. Anyway. Yes, they're dating, and she's like, uh, and she's like, oh, poor Johnny, I feel so sorry for him, because she's like, because I'm his ex-wife, uh, he'd freak if he ever realized that she's really his shape-changing ex-wife in disguise, Elijah, what are you planning on doing here, anyway, she gets summoned to the Four Freedoms Plaza, because Sue's like, uh, Johnny left the team, I figure it'd be a good idea, we're shorthanded, why don't you join the team, Elijah's like, great, I sort of love the fact that they like each other and get along with each other and that Sue invites Lysha to join the team and she's like, I'd be honored to fill in. And there's part of me that's just kind of like, 
what are you doing, Sue? Like, that's not even smart or healthy. Like, what What do you think? Anyway, they get a call from the professor who's all freaked out, and then they see a hand that looks like Ben's that crashes the radio, TV, whatever the thing. So they fly off in their off-brand Klingon cruiser. And, uh, you know, it, of course, <laughs> the, the excellent point... I love... I can hear you, like, run out of power. Well, because this like, is it. It's the next to last panel. turned into things in the end. What I, what I love is the last little part that I love is, is like, Boris is like, oh, at last, they're gone. Now I'm free to begin my real work because I'm not really Boris. But in the background, Cassie Lang is being like, hey, Dad, would you know if Kristoff has a girlfriend? And Scott Lang's thought balloon is like, arg. And I just... I, I love it. I love all of that. I he's he's like, "Oh fuck," you know. Anyway, the rest of it, there's like 10 pages. Let's just say that half the team gets taken out by fucking blowguns, which tells you how bad this this issue is. And then after the thing beats a bunch of other things, like he walks into a temple and the rest of the FF have been turned into things. And because they're all things, it means they have no brain power and can be commanded by any douche and hat. And so it looks like, how is Ben going to actually survive fighting trained fighters, such as a 12-year-old boy in a mechanized suit who's been turned into the thing? Or a woman whose power is entirely about projecting mental thought bubbles, who's now turned into the thing and who looks horrible. Or a scroll who's used to actually like turning into different shapes and now has the power of a thing. How is Ben Grimm, the guy who's been the thing the entire time, going to beat people who now have an experience of an entirely different power set of maybe 12 and a half minutes combined? How is he ever going to beat them, Graham? It's a good question. It Jeff. is. It's a it good totally question. Yeah. I'd like to tell you that FF404, with friends like these, dash, dash, exclamation point, answers that question. And it answers that question when Ben getting beaten up by the aforementioned invisible woman slash thing, Christoph slash thing, and Lija, how can she be taken out by a blow dart when she's an alien? Why do blow darts work in aliens? Yes. Really don't think about it at all. Yes. Slash thing is fighting with Ben and Ben points out that he is, and I quote, the original clobbering kid. <laughs> and so just throws shit at them and then runs away because of course he does. While he's running away, because of course he does. First of all, he is confronted by Christoph thing who threatens to shoot him. <laughs> which I love. <laughs> I love that a lot. Not least of all because Christoph is now the proportions of a thing, because of course he is, but so is his gun. <laughs> Why is that true? I don't know. But let's just assume that it's true because his gun has been mutated through the same process that Lyja, an alien, has been mutated. Let, let's just go with it. Why not? Ben is no longer alone as the only non-thing there, even though he's a thing. But he's an old thing. He's not a new thing, so it's completely different. Because yep. the new things are mind-controlled by Miko, the um, alien thing in the Incan temple. Because Neymar has shown up. Neymar has decided that he's going to take his, quote, proper place with the Fantastic Four. What has really happened is Neymar's own title has been cancelled. And Tommy ah. To bring him into the book, yeah, his book was cancelled just for Atlantis Rising. That's mm. that's how he ended up back in this book altogether. He shows up, basically starts fighting with Sue thing because oh, that's a whole, oh. that's a 
I'm so glad you're recapping this. Ugh, so uh, bad. While the archaeologist gives Ben an explanation of what's going on, while all this is going on, Boris back in Fort Freedom Plaza is talking to another fucking shadowy figure on television going, hey, shadowy figure number maybe 17 in this yeah. run? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's be polite and say 17. Um, I'm ready to reveal myself. We'll get to reveal the next issue, but all you really need to know is that this is bullshit. <laughs> Boris has, for all these issues, quite clearly been Dr. Doom, and he's not as of next issue. That's fine. Boris is interrupted while talking to Shadowy Figure by Cassie, who is like, you, you're some kind of spy. I'm telling my daddy this is going to go very poorly. Cut back to Namor and Soothing, who have a fight while Namor thinks this is a great time to have like a relationship talk yeah i'm i'm not quite sure what was going on he's saying this isn't true susan i care very deeply for you and i would never exploit you never because sue as a thing again mind controlled but also is saying stuff to him like i turned to you because i needed a friend but you tried to take advantage of me yeah what is actually going on here who the fuck knows but thankfully we don't have to think about that because as ben is investigating the temple he meets someone who's decided they're going to take advantage of the ability to create things by using it to take over the world jeff this fucking comic there's a fight between things and things cut back to (laughs) scott who's looking for cassie and cassie is nowhere to be found but luckily boris is there with a gun (laughs) to shoot Scott for asking as opposed to just saying nope haven't seen her instead he's like you're asking where your daughter is I'll answer with a gun because of sh- of course why not they work out how to stop the things being things and things turn back into like normal people they're all very embarrassed it's all terrible but then Ben's like wait if this machine can turn people back into normal people I'm going to turn back into Ben because I'm now collapsed and this is the only way to save me the end Next issue, the final fate of the thing. It's not going to be a final fate. Don't don't believe it. Don't fall for it for a second, people. You're better than this. <laughs> Jeff, yes. Four, yes. four or five. Let's do it super quickly. I'm tired of these comics. <laughs> <laughs> um, 405 is called Terror is Tomorrow. It opens up with a page of Ben Grimm being hit by his uh, the healing rays of the, the weirdo machine. Um like I said, this is a weird, that page kind of throws me off. I feel like it's a tribute to something that I'm not aware of. My first thought was that it was like one of the burn issues, maybe Burns' first issue that he writes and draws with Diablo or something. Anyway, it, it looks like something. Also, it's noticeable that um, Ben Grimm doesn't have a neck in that image. Oh yeah. Right. I, I'm not joking. That yeah. was the first thing I noticed when I looked at it. Yeah. It is, it is strange. It's a strange iconic thing. Anyway. So Christoph, who is the character find of 1995 is like, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I possess the scientific expertise of Dr. Doom himself. I shall not fail. She, he operates the machine. Ben gets turned back into a human. And then they're like, okay, we got to get him to a hospital because of all of his horrible internal injuries. And he's like, Nope, I'm fine. I'm healed. I was hoping that Kristoff would manage to take the uh, credit for that, but no one can actually figure it out. They're kind of like, huh, well, who knows? I mean, this thing, this 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 machine, it was supposed to create an army of unstoppable warriors, we guess. Maybe it also has a healing factor. Who cares? You know, Ben's, like, super happy about the fact that he's human, but then, guess what? His face is still scarred, despite the fact that everyone talks about him being healed from internal injuries. So he's pissed off. Anyway... 
interestingly enough, Ben is so weirdly written uh, over the next four or five pages in such a seesaw of a character that he more or less at the end of things has a there's a thought blue that defalco throws in saying i'm concerned with this machine's effect on ben it may only it may only be my imagination but he already seems more volatile admittedly if this was the ben getting more volatile was a storyline that defalco hadn't teased three times before and never managed to like fucking do anything with i would i would care but the main thing is is that Christoph, character find of 1995 comes to save the day because he's like look man it doesn't matter if your transformation's permanent i can bring the apparatus with us we'll set up a containment field transmit it directly into the stealth hawks cargo hold so basically they're setting up yet another potential dynamic of what if ben Grimm could turn into the thing at will but there's going to be a problem, which is that something, 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 something. Meanwhile, um, Scott is jumping around like a like a lima bean or uh, some sort of thing that jumps around as Boris keeps like shooting him with like what looks like an off-brand phaser. It's just amazing how much and how deep um, uh, Paul Ryan's like love of ripping off secondhand Star Trek tech goes. Uh, <laughs> Scott turns into the new Ant-Man. The suit is ugly as shit. It is just The awful. suit also doesn't look like it did the last the last issue when it was getting designed. Yeah, it's totally true. They decided to design it up like they're kind of like, you know, he kind of looks more like Spider-Man. And they're like, that's okay. We will give him a really hideous ant mask thing that looks more like an ant than his old ant hat. Uh... Yeah, so what else is great? Character find of 1985. <laughs> what, what else is great? It's Kristoff. Kristoff is great. First, he calls Lyja Miss Lyja, which makes him sound weirdly like, I don't know, the nine-year-old like reincarnation, not of Dr. Doom, but Tennessee Williams. And uh, basically mentions, sort of sounds like he's got a crush on Cassandra Lang too, which again, I'm totally loving I'm loving the fact that Lyja is like an accepted member of the team. There's something weird where Ben was hitting on her earlier, but I don't have time. We don't literally have time to go back into that. Um, Sue basically says to Namer that she's not ready to move on, uh, despite the fact that Reed is dead and she knows that he's dead. It's all too soon to for her to start anything with Namer. And let me tell you, I have to say, Graham, that is the biggest sign, like, honestly, like... The fact that they don't... I realized how much, like, you know that Reed's still alive because Sue's not dating anyone else. You know what I mean? Like, it's a weird mm -hmm. thing. We get to the part in the comic that I actually called several issues back, which is around the time that Morgan Le Fay is eating grapes and is being courted by Nathan Richards in his weird helmet and Lord Arcadius in his weird helmet, I'm like, you know what? I kind of get the sense that Paul Ryan... And maybe even Tom DeFalco would rather be doing a Barbarian comic because it's all very off-brand Conan, which is, I have to say, I really called it because Boris, who's fighting Ant-Man, once he starts losing when Ant-Man gets the armor, he turns around and suddenly begins summoning characters from across the time stream. And the very first one is... I swear to God, off-brand Conan the Barbarian. It's Conan, just not named as such. They don't call him that, though, because they can't. 
right? I'm guessing. I don't know if Marvel still has the Conan license by that point. I, I think it... they did, but they've always been coy. But it's clearly Conan. Like, I say off-brand, but it's him. He's got the little trinket around his neck. It's him. It's kind of great. Um, it Also, Iron Man 2020. And Graham, I know you're going to hate me, but all the characters that... Uh, that um, the Tomorrow Man brings Boris back slash the Tomorrow Man. We yes. should say it's the same page that Iron Man twenty twenty shows up. Boris is revealed to be Zarko, Zarko. the Tomorrow Man. Yeah, because that's again everyone's been waiting for the return of Zarko and not fucking Doctor Doom, who it was clearly supposed to clearly be. supposed to be. So okay, so god damn it, Nathaniel Richards in a smoking jacket having a Doombot pour him brandy while he says, "I might as well enjoy myself while I still can." It's only a matter of time before young Kristoff attempts to reclaim his throne and I am sent packing like Nathaniel Richards is just trash and I love that about him so then you see him answering a red alert and you realize he's got his smoking jacket on above his like power he didn't take off his power jumpsuit he's still got his super gloves and everything anyway there's a massive fluctuation of temporal energy which means the moment he's long dreaded has finally come I pray to God that it's a bunch of celestial time travelers that are here to repossess his car because Nathaniel Richards, time fucker, is just trash. Anyway, speaking of trash, the FF get beat by the most obscure people ever. Like, all of the young Bucky. allies, How including Red that? Raven, Bucky, the Melter, but yeah, Bucky and Toro, like... Disco Thor. I don't even recognize Disco Thor. Snowbird. He's, he's, I want to say he's he's the Thor of the future from Defalco's own run. Oh my god. Well, let me tell you. Wow. The Melter, Snowbird, at one point Union Jack shows up to punch Ben Grimm. Omega the Unknown shows up, which I just about like fucking lost a gut that Omega shows up as with just about every character, including the FF under DeFalco's run, wildly out of character, uh, the Two-Gun Kid, Blizzard, Scourge, uh, that one dude I don't remember, Blackout from Nova. God, I remembered Blackout. The old Black Knight, uh, the Wizard who, like, shows up, and again, wildly out of character. Um, Zarko's having a great time until he's finally defeated because, of course, Scott, Ant-Man... It, thanks to all the great powers that Kristoff has given him, is able to yank off his belt with a tiny, tiny grappling hook. You kind of feel like maybe Kristoff was being a tad sarcastic when he was like, oh, I'm going to give you all the best powers. Look, grappling hook. Anyway, so it turns out that Cassie Lang uh, knows that Scott was Ant-Man, which was what he was trying to hide from her all along, but she's known it for a long time. And, she's, and, and again... Tom DeFalco really loves cracking on Ant-Man because even Cassie's like, oh, I didn't care about it because it's not like you're a real famous superhero like Captain America or Spider-Man. So he's like, ah. Anyway, I had forgotten. I love that he actually says, I see your point. Yes. <laughs> Tom DeFalco simultaneously loves and hates Ant-Man. Yeah. And I genuinely enjoy that. I do too. I do too. So, uh, well, anyway... So then basically Zarkov's like, hey, guess what? All of time's an open book to me. I know what happened to Reed Richards and Dr. Doom, and I can lead you to them. And she's like, wait, they're alive? And Ben's like, oh, they're, they're lying. We stretch us dead. We all saw them die. And then Zarko uh, blows up into a big pile of ashes, just like what happened to Reed and Doom. Um, but Kristoff is like, there's a major difference, Grim. 
This time my sensors locked on that destructive beam of energy and can track it to its source to be continued, says Namer's foot, or his wings. It's kind of great. Uh, yeah, that's the issue. Graham, things are heating up in the old town. Um, I got to tell you, again, Conan and Kristoff. This was, I want to say this is my favorite issue, but it was up there. Here's my question. Mm-hmm. As I have made clear, the Tomorrow Man should not have been the Tomorrow Man. It was quite clearly <laughs> supposed to be Doctor Doom. Clearly, yeah, absolutely. Is it not super strange to you, or and maybe a sign that like this was literally like a last minute change of plans? The the gimmick for this is also the gimmick for four hundred. The FF have to fight people yes. being brought forward from another yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it is weird, isn't it? Um, like, because it literally happened like five issues ago, and yeah. yet all of a sudden it's like, hey, it's other people. And like four hundred, nothing is done with it. Mm-hmm. The gimmick is, look, I'm bringing people through time to fight you, but you don't see the fights. I mean, literally, this issue is just cameo panel, cameo panel, cameo panel. Yep. And there's you see no conflict. Yep. Yeah, it's the strangest thing. You, you know what I think is kind of interesting is uh, th- there's a there's a panel in in one of these. I don't remember where. I think it's probably FF 400, where they they say something like maybe it's even in that Requiem issue, the the farewell to read stuff, where they've got like a mo- a battle montage panel of um, the FF's greatest foes, and it's like mm-hmm. Doctor Doom and Galactus and you know, Devos the Devastator or whatever, but there's a Mortis in there. Or no, no, Ramatut. Ramatut's in there. And I'm like, you know, they've really only fought Ramatut like maybe three times. And I kind of had that thing of like, maybe Paul Ryan's just into that. Like, again, I don't know how much he gets a say in these issues. People in the comments threads have suggested that it was all DeFalco and DeFalco was just being generous slash overly uh, generous with the plotting credit. But um, uh, I do, I did think that it was weird that this pops up twice, but I also have to say, I mean, and this is, this is another thing that's like probably just an aside, but the issue where Sue turns into the thing and she and Namer have a battle while talking about their relationship issues Mm -hmm. is a weird regurgitation of an early Steve Englehart issue, isn't it? Like... There's that whole sequence where Sherry gets turned into the she thing and she and Ben battle it out while talking about their issues, like in the jungle of Columbia, right? Yeah. So it's kind of this weird, like, apart from the fact that I think that Tom DeFalco is weirdly kind of fixated on Steve Englehart at like a deeply unconscious level uh, in these issues, which is part of why Aaron has popped up like three times. Um, I, I just, DeFalco, it's. I do wonder. It's almost like they're not because they're not paying attention. A, or or I guess a they're not paying attention. Or B, I wonder if this is far enough out that they know that the book is going to be ending, and what they that's, were going to wrap up earlier, they're stretching out longer. Is that what you? That's were going what with? I. That's what I've been wondering because okay. I I also wondered if they found out somewhere around 400 mm-hmm. because 400 would have made sense for this period to bring yes read back mm-hmm. if if not uh, doom mm-hmm. you know and it's very strange to me that doesn't happen yeah. and i do wonder at what point they find out that the book's gonna end and they start changing their plans yeah yeah i i i sort of wonder i i kind of think that 
that maybe Doom... Like, 400 is not supposed to have readback, but, like you said, Boris is, suppo- is clearly supposed to be Doom, and he's supposed to start his um, return much, much earlier than here, which is why, honestly, the whole thing with the thing might just be some sort... Like, literally was something that, that DeFalco and Ryan... Like we're like, oh right, we 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 abandoned this, but basically we've got the contours of the story sort of mapped out. Let's go to that because we've got a vamp for time. Because originally, like we were going to reveal that Boris was doomed back in like four oh one before we changed our plans or whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So. It's super super strange, but it's it's you know there are many things in these issues that make you think, ah, oh, they're they're not the. You know, they not that they don't care, but like they're just running out the clock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the Tomorrow Man is so out of nowhere. I'm so out of nowhere for one issue. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, like Boris is built up for so long. Yep. And then he's like, I'm the Tomorrow Man. And then he dies immediately. But don't you think that, I mean, that's what happened with Lyja, at least originally, right? Like, Lyja was an explanation for who Alicia was. And then DeFalco kills her, like, within two yeah, issues. But Li- yeah, but Lyja is the answer to someone else's problem. Yeah, but, I mean, I feel like that's... De- Honestly, the thing that's amazing about DeFalco is he treats all of his own stories like they're someone else's problem. You know what I mean? Like, he's, he's not personally... It doesn't feel like he's personally invested in any of it at a certain point, you know? Like, yeah, no, I think... That, yeah, that's true. That's true. Cause... I don't know. It's just there's something really... I mean... I was going to say there's something really strange about these issues. Obviously, there is. But there's something really strange about the pacing of these issues. Yes. And partially, it's the crossover, like, weirdly throws everything off. Mm-hmm. But also, just, like, how did the, the, oh, no, there's lots of things story take three issues? Right. How did that happen? Right. Well, and the flip side of it is how does the, the whole, like, Watcher story, like, somehow wrap up in, like, four you know what I mean? Like the Dark Raider and the whole thing with the Watcher, like that's all stuff that's been going, building up for a while. And DeFalco has like a number of opportunities to like, he's he's like doing an inept job, but he's more or less tr- wrapping up like two or three different vague shadowy subplots all at once, you know, mm-hmm. which is kind of weirdly unlike him. So... Yeah, I just think that there's there's a lot of. It wouldn't surprise me if maybe there was a thing that was coming, and maybe part of it is tied to the fact that, you know, Ralph Macchio is gone before issue four hundred, which is strange. I think to me, that an that an editor would not stick around for a big anniversary issue in in that sense. Um, yeah, but I I really think like there's everything about that that makes me think that things shit was bad yes well that's it i think shit was bad and i i also do wonder if it was a little bit of the you know hey we gotta we gotta change directions here and defalco's like nope and and so the rest of this i wonder if some of this is like how much of this is defalco vamping for time and yet simultaneously trying to get shit lined up to wrap it all up i don't I don't know. I mean, you'll have a better idea. And God knows we'll all know very soon because I am stunned by the idea that there is less than a year left of this book. I mean, just. There's 11 issues. 
Oof. But we're we're firmly heading into the end game. Mm-hmm. The the very next issue starts what is to all intents and purposes the the final act of the Defalco Ryan right arc. Good Christ, it's weird. It's weird. Like uh, I hate to get old school nerd on you, but like you know how like there's that scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where like that knight is just charging and running and running and running and he's always off in the distance and you're just to a point you're bored and staring and then the very next second he's like on all these people and hacking them up. I'm like, part of me is like, how can the end be here so soon? Which is hilarious, Graham, because we've been tortured with this shit for like how long now? It really feels like forever. We've only been doing it for four years. Years? Well, no, I don't mean the Fantastic Four overall, <laughs> although there is that one could make the case for that. But how long is the DeFalco era? Like, how quickly have we moved through this? Like, I mean, we have uh, we were doing Simonson in the summer, weren't we? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I think that we've only been torturing ourselves with this for like not even six months. But if you told me like nine if you told me i was gonna say if you told me it was a year i would believe you i would believe it too other than like no the math doesn't check out on that but otherwise i'd be like sure and honestly as much as i talked about how much i love these issues they're not good uh when i read them like i swear to god when i got to issue 401 and realized i still had four more issues left i wanted to die I really wanted to not be alive anymore rather than have to keep reading. I was like, really? I've been reading forever. It just felt like those five issues that weren't even complete fucking stories just went on and on and on. Like I said, that's Uh, where the Stockholm Syndrome kicks in. Okay, Jeff, here's my question in that light. Do you want to do 406 through 411, or do you want to go all the way to the end of the series? Well, actually, Graham, here's, I think, probably a better question, is since we're moving into the last act and we're on a super cliffhanger, maybe our next issue should be... Like the annuals? The annuals, <laughs> like a huge chunk of annuals to bring us up to whatever's relevant and then close the, it off. The annuals are going to be really, like, genuinely problematic to do. Oh, really? Why? Because they're all ties in, tie-ins to other events? Yeah, or... there's a lot of crossovers. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, uh, okay. Why don't we, why, but will they spoil what's happening, what's going to happen? Do you know? Or are they all relatively self-contained? No, they're crossover to other storylines, Jeff. Oh, oh, yeah. No, I mean, but like Fantastic Four storylines? Or like... No. Well, see, then I don't care. I'll just I'll just read a bunch of... I, that's the thing, Graham. I can read these comics now. They don't have to have stories. They, they don't, don't have to... They don't need to make sense. They don't need to make oh. sense. Yeah, yeah. Let's just do all okay. the annuals. Well, in that case, let's do annual 24 through 27 next time. Annuals 24 through 27. Okay, terrific. Great. And yeah. that's the end of the annuals. And then we will only have, like, 11 issues of the comic left. Great. And then we'll go through that all in a go, I think. Oh. And then we'll weep. Oh, God. I can't even say that I'm, I'm saying that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you can find show notes for this episode up on Monday-ish. Let's say Monday. Let's say end of Monday uh, at com. We have an Instagram. Instagram.com forward slash pods. We have a Tumblr. Wait, what pods? Tumblr.com. Yeah, you got it. Mm-hmm. At first, I would put the 
Twitter account is at Waywell Podcast. That's what threw me. I was like, one of them is Waywell Podcast, and the other two are Waywell Pod, and I couldn't remember which is which. Yep. Twitter is at Waywell Podcast. Jeff's Twitter is at LazyBasted, at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-C-I-D. And my Twitter is at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. There's also Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Waywell Podcast. Uh, and because we are a Patreon supporter podcast, Jeff, has something to say. Yes, I do. Everyone, you're fabulous. Um, everyone who, who puts up with our, our what I believe what Tom DeFalco <laughs> would call malarkey, uh, uh, deserves our thanks and gratitude. We hope that you enjoy it. Um, we especially owe a debt of gratitude to the fine people of Patreon um, who, uh, by throwing us a little bit of what I now call Christoph dollars, uh, managed... He's the sensational character find of 1995. Oh, God damn, if, if yes, he is. I didn't think that I would love a character more than Time Fucker, but really, I was like, no, I love Kristoff. Like, I love him. Anyway, uh, which doesn't <laughs> sound wrong. Anyway, uh, Patreon, if you if 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 the Baxter Building is the bane of your existence, like it is, oh, Graham and ours. <laughs> Blame the people of Patreon because we hit a stretch goal and little did we know how much we were all going to suffer as a result of it. I think Graham knew, but like, I don't think Graham really knew, but I don't know. That's something we're going to have to do. I always sort of denied the the Falco Ryan run existence. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, please, please, their hearts were in the right place. Forgive them and, and love them, including the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios, as well as Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. We're especially grateful to them for their continuing support of this podcast. Oh, Lord, it's been a long one. Graham? It really has been long, and especially if you consider what announced that we recorded the Stanley episode before this. We've been going for quite some time, and both Jeff and I need to lie down for a long time. <laughs> we will be back next week yeah. with regular weight but... Until then, Jeff sings us out because it's you. It's me. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time in the lobby of the Baxter Building.